0: October 2013, I went from being this guy who yeah. lived in the Lower East Side, I got with all the women, I was Jiu Jitsu champion, like I made good money, everything was good, I was suave, yeah. to basically feeling like I was tripping on acid 24 uh, seven, without taking any drugs in a two week period of time. Okay. I went from this, this place, to this whole new place in two weeks. And it was just this quick decline, a losing of my psyche, a fracturing of my, of my my psyche.
1: Hey friends, Jeffrey Wu here and welcome to another episode of the HVMN podcast. How have you felt the past two weeks? I assume you felt normal, hopefully even great. You've been eating healthily, exercising, getting enough sleep, and bam! What if in the next two weeks you start to feel increasingly depressed, start having panic attacks, and feel your sanity start slipping away for no reason at all? That's what Josh Mason went through in 2014. Josh was at the top of his world. He was a recently minted Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu world champion, his career and family life going really, really well. He was on the surface completely healthy and crushing it. But over a two week Period, he began mentally breaking down. When his doctors couldn't help him, Josh went on a three year journey to figure out what he could do to cure himself and essentially save his own life. This is an adventure, and I'll let Josh tell the rest of his story, but trust me, you'll want to hear it. If you're tuning in via audio, remember to hit that subscribe button for weekly episodes. For folks watching on YouTube, please subscribe as well. But also hit that bell next to the red subscribe button. YouTube isn't perfect and doesn't always notify you when we post a video. So click on that bell to not miss out. Without further ado, let's get right into it. Josh, thanks for coming in.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: So this is pretty atypical for us. So the folks who are listening, you don't see this, but folks on YouTube, you see that he's in a medicine ball,
0: he's got his shoes off. Why are you doing this? Let's start Well, the shoes off are just just getting more comfortable, comfortable, you know, but the medicine ball is because I herniated my L5 disc about nine months ago and I've recovered in amazing ways. I can jog, I can run, I can stretch and do yoga and do all kinds of cool positions with my body, but I literally just can't sit in a chair. I have, I think it's called a subluxation where the disc actually goes to the back towards the spinal column instead of most herniations, which go to the left or to the right. Right. And it's also the lowest disc. so basically it's like your
1: lower back, right above your- The sacrum. Okay. Yeah. yeah.
0: It's the worst disc to herniate because when you're sitting, all of the pressure comes onto that one disc, right? So if it's a little bit off, mine was a five millimeter herniation, which is pretty intense. But I know people who have had way worse. Five millimeters. Um, that's yeah. a lot. Yeah. I think like the most that I've ever heard of a recovery happening without surgery is like 10. Okay. So, I'm, which happens to be my chiropractor. So I, I have the best in the business yeah. right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. That begs the
1: question: How did this even happen? I mean, yeah. let's let's talk to your background as a jiu-jitsu practitioner.
0: What's the journey here? Yeah.
1: For my back specifically,
0: yeah. basically, I trained and competed in Brazilian jiu-jitsu for almost five years and was very intense with that. I, I won the World Championships in 2010 as a beginner white belt. And then I won as a, the Pan Ams as a blue belt. And then I won Abu Dhabi Trials as a purple belt. I fought a lot of the best black belts in the world. I fought a lot of them. I was on that track to really being a professional. It's pretty quick. Like, I mean, your
1: progress is quick if you're just like black belts.
0: It was super quick. I was gung-ho and it was my love, my passion. And it was a part of my soul for so many years. Like I, I literally breathed, slept, and ate jujitsu. Like, that's all I cared about. How
1: were you introduced into it? Were you a wrestler in high school? Uh, yeah,
0: I wrestled, and then I got super bored in college, right? I was like, okay, I was getting into street fights because I didn't know what to do with myself, you know? Like, I just couldn't process the amount of energy that was surging through me. So I was up wrestling with one of my friends in the rec center. I went to University of Maryland, and there were some jujitsu people in there. And we're not allowed to grapple in there at all, right? So we got kicked out on a regular basis. But in any case, I saw this jujitsu dude. He was like 40 pounds lighter than me. Total nerd looking dude. And I was like, this guy's asking me to roll it. I'm going to fuck this dude up. Are we allowed to curse on this show? yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Okay. And I trained with him. He literally choked me borderline unconscious in like seven seconds with a guillotine choke. Wow. And then I was like, oh, that was a fluke. Let's go again. I was angry. I was like, let's go again. Same exact choke. 15 seconds later, he caught me in it, yeah. and I literally just said, holy shit, I need to learn what this dude and what these people are doing, Yeah, and I started training at his school, Yamasaki Jiu-Jitsu. Okay. I don't know if you've ever seen Mario and Fernando yeah. Yamasaki on, on the, the UFC. The UFC ref. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. They were my first coaches. They are amazing, <laughs> amazing coaches, and I just was all in. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So it's literally just, you're a high school wrestler. Were you wrestling
1: in college or was there just- I wrestled wrest-
0: for like four months of preseason at University of Maryland. Okay. But once like the real season started, they were just like, hey dude, like we like you and you're showing up and that's great, but you're not going to make it. Okay. Like I probably was good enough to be a bench type dude to just okay. get beat up from the other guys. And I started to get really, really good in those three or four months. But the fact is that my class schedule was just way more intense than any of the wrestlers. Right, Because the wrestlers went there to wrestle. I went there to go to college. And I just really wanted to do something with my energy as well. So it was a combo of probably not being good enough and also just being too invested in in actual school.
1: Essentially what I think about this is like a D1, D2 college level wrestling base channeling that energy into brazilian jiu-jitsu and then just make like running and taking a tear at it
0: yeah and i was very intense and also i was very cerebral about it yeah which is why i think i was successful because it really became like human chess to me so it was the combo of the intensity the physicality and also the chess the cognitive side of jiu-jitsu right i think
1: a lot of people describe it as human chess or just playing a cerebral match with your limbs as a knight and a bishop what are you sacrificing what are you fainting mm, with, totally right totally yeah so yeah, i think this is an interesting subject to just explore more is i would say commendable that you were humble enough to like go like hey like these people this kind of nerdy scrying dude could have something to teach me yeah um, with anger but i did it yeah <laughs> <laughs> what were the first few sessions like so it, it gives you a sense i grew up playing tennis and then rolled a little bit at stanford there was a bjj club so nothing overly formal but had some you know, summer of like messing around a little bit which is like one of the most intense workouts and I think my sense of how I rank like toughness in terms of athletes based on the discipline wrestlers are definitely up there BJJ is definitely up there it's just such a dynamic full body kind of crazy contorted movements very very functional where I would say that something like tennis you know the sport that I grew up playing very kind of Constrained, awkward motions, right? No one is doing, you know, these top spin looping motions normally in life. Like it's a very technical activity or a movement where I think BJJ, it's just like free flow fighting yeah. on the ground. Just yeah. curious to go from like as a wrestler into the BJJ world, that transition. Mm. How did you see your body evolve? Did you just see a step up in terms of?
0: I love that question. question. Yeah, wrestling was very one-dimensional. There was technique and the best in the world are very technical, but it was more about strength, more about tenacity, more about just getting shit done, you know, just finish the takedown, get off your back. And there was this fortitude that you had to have to be a successful wrestler. And when I started moving to jujitsu, especially the geek, Right, yeah. Because the gi causes a lot of friction and it also causes strength to not be as effective as technique. See, when, when you have all of this fabric on you, you can't get out of a move with poor technique and strength. Mm-hmm. When you're not wearing a gi and you're just in a rash guard or shirt off, you can use strength to escape a technique. You can right. use willpower to escape a technique. Right. But with that gi on, you're absolutely forced to learn the deepest intricacies of the move, of the correct technique. One few inches this way with your wrist can make the difference between escaping and not escaping. Right. Whereas in the in no gi, all you have to do is just fucking want it, right. you know. And, or maybe
1: yeah. one way to think about it is that that gi offers a lot of leverage, so it multiplies a weaker person's strength, right? Totally. You have you have a lever now to to,
0: to, exactly. to like, trap your movements. So when I first started, I started with no gi, and I was like, oh wow, I'm really really good at this jujitsu thing. You know, I'm <laughs> I'm just destroying everyone you're just like wrestling people i was just wrestling them. yeah i was just controlling their bodies preventing getting submitted and just holding them to the ground you know and then i put a gi on and that's when i started getting tossed around like i was a small child you know basically yeah. by good blue belts basically it would just throw me around and do all these weird things and choke me in weird ways with my own collar and that's when i started to hate and also have curiosity for the gi and wanted to learn about it. And that's when the cerebral aspect started kicking in. Once I started learning about the gi. And it's interesting talking about this subject. I haven't talked about jujitsu in so long, (laughs) right? It's like, I'm going deep into my memory bank here. But yeah, also what started happening, this is not necessary for the show, but I started smoking marijuana at some point during my jujitsu career. And I didn't smoke since high school for many, many years. And then I started smoking marijuana and I just started playing the guard. We went from being a wrestler, always wanting to be on top to using this plant to mellow myself (laughs) out. And all of a sudden I started training stoned on a regular basis. And I was just playing on my back and like playing like a monkey and learning the body, tuning into where people's mind was. Because if you can feel their mind while you're training with them, you can feel where they are. You can always be a step ahead if you're tuned into them, where they are, if they're angry, if if they're determined. And we just intensified the connection with that other human being, you know? Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, I think
1: typically something like THC or CBD will increase your tactile feeling. Mm-hmm. And maybe it's kind of mellows. That's interesting. Like I, I can imagine that the change of perception allows you to be more intuitive with your movements. It did. Okay. It,
0: and it let me crack out of a patterning of wrestling. Yep. The patterning was that always wanting to win, if I lost, I was dead, but losing to me was equated as a death. I had to take a step back in order to get actually good at Jiu Jitsu. Right. I had to accept loss. I had to put my ego aside. And that's the case with the best Jiu Jitsu athletes is They've been beat up so many times that if they were in their ego the whole time, they would have gotten hurt and never would have been able to have a sustainable career. Right. You have to learn how to like put that aside. Yeah, I mean, I think that's just progress and learning. If you're
1: not humble enough to realize what you're doing is wrong, if you think, hey, like I'm just going to punch through everything, mm-hmm. at a certain point you break. And I think like the mature approach to more quickly progress is to be open-minded to learn. Mm-hmm. So it sounds interesting that like you basically, at a certain point, Maybe through the use of substances, I was able to switch the <laughs> yeah, mindset a little yeah. bit. So now you started playing guard, which is essentially instead of being on top, you're on your back.
0: Yeah. And that's when I started to get really good at Jiu-Jitsu. Okay. Once I learned how to play the guard, once I got comfortable on my back, which is a no-no in wrestling right. and learning the gi.
1: How quick was this? Was this like a three-month progression? One month, six months? I, Give us
0: a sense of the time here. Oh man, I love talking about this. I I won the world championships in June of 2010 and I started training no gi jiu-jitsu maybe November 2009. And then I think I got my first gi in like March. And three months later, I was at the world championships in California. My gi was way too long for me. It was like someone else's (laughs) gi actually. And I had, I think I had seven fights, 140 people in my division, single elimination. What weight class or was Middleweight. Okay. White belt, middleweight. Which is 100. 181. 181. Okay. Yeah. And I didn't really know what I was doing with the gi, but I was still in a little bit, of mostly wrestler mode <laughs> at that point in time. And then I got my blue belt and I started training with good blue belts and realized, okay, this wrestling thing, maybe I'll win. It takes me so much energy just to get a few points off these dudes Let me learn how to actually train in this sport. And then cannabis came (laughs) and the guard came. And then March of 2012, which was, I guess, a couple of years of being a blue belt. I won the Pan Ams, which was, again, I had 144 people in my division. Single elimination in one day. So it just keeps branching off, getting cut in half. And then you left the two folks at the end. And the dude who I fought in the finals beat me three times that year. And he beat me all three times in under 40 seconds. He destroyed me all three times. And, and these are smaller tournaments. Smaller local IBJJF tournaments. Okay. Yeah, It mattered. I still cared. But, but he, like, this is a big deal. This was the most important <laughs> one. It was so important that he quit the sport after losing to me in the finals. He broke his he, mind. He didn't even show up to the podium and he quit the sport. What? Yeah, I literally broke him. <laughs> yeah. Why? Well, uh, I can only speculate. Yeah, right? I, mean, I was curious. Yeah. I mean,
1: like, Oh yeah, yeah, that's a crazy story. Like, <laughs> yeah. what, what did you do?
0: Well, how did I win or or why did yeah, mean, he both, quit, right?
1: Like it's like clearly if I were in that shoe, we're like, okay, I was, was able to beat this person 3 times in a row pretty handily, right? Yeah. Under 40 seconds.
0: Yeah. Wouldn't well, you
1: just rationalize, "Hey, like I made I choked, I did a silly error. I'm going to come back and.
0: I was terrified of him. To me, he was just unbeatable. Yeah. In my head, there was a piece of me that thought I had no chance. Okay, there was a piece of me that okay. thought that. But there was also a piece of me that came to the surface only a few times in my training. It, it was like an animal that came to the surface that when it came out, I was like, I literally would black out and be like, oh, oh, what was that? You know, okay. I'm back, I'm yeah. back. And I just wanted it so bad. And I, at the time, I, was, I used to listen to techno music and I just put that techno music in and I just breathed. All I did is breathe. I said, until this fight I had an hour to kill, I'm not going to focus on anything except for my breath. I don't care what thoughts come in, I'll say, okay, maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. Back to my breath. Right. And I literally did that for an hour straight. The first time I've ever did any meditation. Right. And it, I wasn't meditating. I was trying to win. Right. And and my coach came up to me before the finals. And he said, man, you have to breathe. You have to breathe. And I just started breathing, started breathing. And I got out there and and I channeled what would, be, to me, what I now know as my soul and my spirit. I channeled that in the final match. But I wouldn't have known until three and a half years of torture and and mental unrest. After that moment, what my soul and spirit was. Right. But now, in hindsight, that was my interesting. Spirit. I that, mean, there's yeah. like multiple ways that scientists, physiologists,
1: or psychologists, or gurus would call it like flow state, tapping into your soul. I mean, accessing yeah. some pinnacle of your mind and body working as one. Flow. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent flow. Yeah. And then. You beat him. I beat him. Choked him
0: out. I I beat him for nothing. It was a seven minute fight. I beat him for nothing. And I started screaming after I won, screaming at my buddy. Man, this guy, Adam and I, he's a world class black belt right now. He owns his own school in Montclair. It's Adam Peterson. I'm totally spacing on the name of his school, but I want to give him a shout out because he deserves it. But he was coaching me during those Pan Ams, and I literally ripped off my gi and was screaming at him because we had beaten the shit out of each other for almost three years at this point, right. two and a half years, just nonstop beating the shit out of each other. Brothers outside of jiu-jitsu, outside of killing each other, we were brothers, but in the moment, we would literally try and kill each other. Right. And that's the essence of jiu-jitsu. When you choke someone, if there wasn't the construct of tapping, tapping and up. giving up, right. you'd actually be killing them. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so- just ripped my gi off and I started screaming and, and the dude said, you barely won, man. Then I was just like, man, you beat me three times this year. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone was screaming, don't listen to him. Don't listen to him. You know, and I, I was just crying like a little baby because in those moments, I was only a blue belt. I wasn't making money, but I didn't fight for any of those reasons. I fought because I had this deep internal passion towards the sport and internal desire to prove to myself that I was worth it. Yeah. I fought because I thought I was worthless in this world. And I thought that if I could win in fighting, that I would mean something in this world. And I would mean something to myself. Mm-hmm. And that's the truth of it. Yeah. You know? And so when I won that, I can, I'm can. i literally tearing up you know, because it just let me know that I can win in life. That was just the feeling that I got invoked with and it has not left me. It has left me during times of illness, but the overarching way that I made it through my illness, which we'll talk about, is through that victorious energy, that that spirit, that feeling that I got after winning that tournament.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's just inspiring to hear. I mean, I I want to continue the story, but it sounds like these seminal moments, if one can't tap into it, hopefully like that story can be an inspiration for other people, right? If people can realize that you can break through, just surpass what you thought was possible, that seems to be a recurring theme that people that, whether they're in the military or elite performance, that kind of binds them to their practice, that notion that they can do something that they didn't think was possible.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. And then your opponent just broke. Yeah, he just didn't show up to the podium picture. And the picture on on you know IBJJF, it's literally there's three of us on the podium. Normally there's four because yeah. we don't fight for two bronzes. Right. And he just wasn't there. You <laughs> know. And he never competed again. Yeah, I'm not going to say I his mean, name. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think we need to you know shame <laughs> yeah.
1: someone on this, but it's just yeah. surprising that. He clearly was a competent athlete. Yeah. But you just there's a difference I guess between someone like yourself and someone like that where that
0: f- first mental snap, they just gave up. Exactly. You have to learn how to lose in order to learn how to win, I feel. Mm. To be the best, I don't believe that character is shown when you're winning. The real character is shown and revealed when you've lost. Right. What do you do when you're down? I feel like this is one of the cardinal rules in terms of success in life. It's literally what do you do when you're down? What do you do once you've lost? Right. That's what makes the difference. All world-class motivational speakers always talk about what do you and it's so cliche, but it literally is the truth. What spaces of consciousness do you fall into when you lose? How fast do you get out of them? How much do you believe them? And where do you return to? What homeostasis do you go to after right. the loss? You yeah. Know, he, it broke him and he was identified with his wins, you know. And I had lost before. So I knew what it was
1: like. I mean, I think that's one of those things that might sound overly fuzzy or bullshitty or mm-hmm. overly spiritual, but I think, you know, something that I've been puzzling about recently, just like how do you set standards or how do you guide people towards life? And I think in like a modern educational setting, there's not a lot of guidance for how to think or how to approach life. And I think that'll a small anecdote here where you learned how to lose. You learned that not mm-hmm. you're tested when you win, it's tested when, when you lose. And like flipping that script in your mind, mm-hmm. if more people had this kind of mindset, I think more people would be doing better, valuable things in their lives. Absolutely. Yeah, it's an interesting you know nugget for people to take away here. One thing that struck me was what prevents people from sandbagging, right? Like if you've been training for three years, mm-hmm what if you just wanted to crush a bunch of white belts? Yeah, If you were equivalent to like a purple belt or a brown belt or a black belt and you want to just win the blue belt Pan Ams, mm-hmm. don't just hold yourself back to yes. the blue belt and just crush some you know, mm-hmm. people that are less experienced than you.
0: Every single person on the world stage at every single belt, yeah. white, blue, purple, brown, is sandbagging. Okay. Yeah. Basically, this was four or five years ago, so it, it could have changed. I doubt it has. But there's two lines, right? There's recreational jujitsu, basically training in the gym, being good in your gym, yeah. and then there's competition jujitsu, yeah. being good amongst the rest of the pack, the re- amongst all the gyms, amongst you know IBJJF. Yeah. And if you're going to be in the top of any of those belts, you are basically almost one to two belts above that. If you win the world championships as a blue belt. <sighs> You're already going into normal gyms and, the, oh, sorry, and like crushing and brown fucking belts. Fucking up brown yeah. belts. Okay. Probably even some black belts. Okay. <laughs> when I quit the sport, yeah. I was a world-class purple belt and I was destroying most black belts that I rolled with. Okay. So being a black belt in jiu-jitsu, in my opinion, there's no gauge in my head. I never even ask people what belt they are because it, it doesn't mean anything to okay. me. Right. Of course, it's a real accomplishment. I'm not taking away from that, but seeing the difference between competition jiu-jitsu and round the corner right you know bear like and me signing up for 10 years you, and getting a black belt it's yeah. a world of difference yeah. so to answer your question everyone's sandbagging and everyone is ready for their next belt if they're getting even in the top 16 in the world or in the pan-ams right and they're in their division and this is my opinion from five years ago i could be very wrong and if there's anyone who's Hardcore into jiu-jitsu right now, and they're like, "Please leave a comment." You yeah. know, am I fucking wrong right now? Yeah. I, I don't think so. But yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. interesting. So basically, yeah. like
1: the competition route, there's just a, a sort of understood hierarchy. You're constantly competing. You kind of know what everyone's calibrated at. So you know, like the competition level purple belts or competition brown belts. Like you kind of know your range just by like getting out there. Your fighting. range in the world, yeah. like oh yeah, yeah. If, yeah.
0: if you're just casually training jiu-jitsu and then you go to like an, uh, an IBJJF tournament, right. you'll see the real level of competition amongst yeah. the belts in the world. Yeah. Yeah. One yeah.
1: thing that I wanted to also expand upon is you mentioned that you're fighting and you're fighting to kill someone or, or die. Yeah. And I've only tapped into that feeling maybe like once or twice. And most recently was doing a charity boxing match with with a good friend, Nagib, And It was a friendly fight, but like when you're in the ring, you're staring at someone and you see in their eyes, they try to kill you. Mm -hmm. Like we talked about before, I'm like, hey, we're friends outside the ring, but like in the ring, I'm going to try to fuck you up and Mm -hmm. vice versa. Mm -hmm. And I think in normal life, you never see the intensity. In normal day-to-day activity, you don't ever see someone trying to kill you. Mm -hmm. Like the intensity level of life is pretty muted. Mm-hmm. And I, I imagine when you're doing your BJJ competitions and fights, you were literally in your mindset trying to kill the other person. Mm-hmm. Was that accurate? And can you dive into that mindset and how you separate that intense, animalistic, murderous sort of energy mm-hmm. from
0: being a normal human being mm-hmm. that can survive in a civilian world? I think there were times when my consciousness rested on killing. Like there were times when that was what I would describe as where I was. Right. I think winning was more prevalent for me, but oftentimes it was winning and killing combined, yeah. you know? And it wasn't the type of killing that you see in like serial killers where it's twisted and like weird. Right. It was pure animal defending one's to territory, survive. tribal yeah. murder or tribal defending of, yeah. of one's life, you know? And- That is what I believe is in the deepest depths of the belly, deepest depths of our being. I feel that actually exists and it's actually repressed in our culture. Yeah. Um, I believe that a lot of mental issues and all kinds of neuroses that are happening in our culture are a result of people not feeling comfortable in their animal nature and not being free to express it. When in reality, that animal nature is not actually bad. There is a place for it. It should be cultivated and learned, right? If you don't learn it, it owns you right it should be channeled in a productive way exactly yeah if it's a mystery it owns you if yeah. you can learn how to own it then there won't be a problem you know you won't release it on someone in the wrong in right. a weird way so i believe that energy can actually be given to every conversation it doesn't have to be murderous or killing right. but i actually live my life with that same energy see athletes you were a very good tennis player right i mean a good high reasonable high, high school. school okay yeah. In any case, anytime someone is an athlete and then they're losing in life, they're like, I only knew how to be victorious in this one sport. Right. I say that's bullshit. I say that the energy that went into the sport is that person. That person can cultivate that energy and they can bring that energy into the world, whether it's a conversation or an essay or acing a test. That confidence transfers, right? Yeah, and it's not only confidence, it's like an energetic pathway, right? You see people when they're good at sports, they're in their flow, they're in their body, they're dancing to something, right? They're dancing to a beat. They're not just rigid. They're always in some sort of rhythm, right? Right. The best athletes in the world. How do you bring that rhythm into life, you know? And I believe it's doable, but we're trained to believe that we're only using that energy and it was the tennis that revealed it, right? you know? It was the sport that revealed it, but it wasn't the sport that created it. You are the creator. We are the ones who have the energy in the first There's place. A
1: manifestation of the energy, but the energy is
0: in- innate to oneself. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So to answer your question, I feel that I'm often in that state still in my life, huh. in a deep belly state, not necessarily like with killing intent, you know, right. but like, I take life really seriously. I'm very serious yeah. about my life, you know? Yeah. So, so I think I've translated it from jujitsu into my everyday world. Interesting. You know? and, and I think one thing that I think
1: kind of strikes me is that I think as an inexperienced, just jumping into a ring and out of like three months of training, Maybe part of the immaturity is that like I just wasn't comfortable there. But it sounds like you've just been in so many fights, basically fighting at like a life or death kind of intensity, where it's like less about fear or survival instincts. Now it's just channeling energy
0: in a productive way, perhaps. Like is my sense here. Now or back then you mean I mean kind of both. Yeah. It felt very productive to me. Right. It felt that if I didn't have jiu jitsu that I would have kept getting into street fights, I would have never been able to hold down my corporate job. I was working at Microsoft at the time. I never would have been able to hold that down. I would have just freaked out (laughs) on someone. Yeah. Yeah. But even
1: in the comfort in the ring, right? Because I think it's like stressful to fight someone. It's scary to go into a one on one confrontation. I think in modern society, it's very rare where it's like you're squared up, yelling full intensity, I want to kill you. You want to kill me. Do you ever lose that fear? The
0: fear is always there. Okay. It's terrifying. And all you do is learn how to put aside that voice that chimes in. Then the raw fear is always there, right? Okay. There's this feeling that kicks in, butterflies in the stomach, you're, you're cold, you're hot, you have to pee, you have to shit. It's these things that happened yeah. before a fight. It's just this weird feeling. And the thing that kills people is not that. It's the story that will chime in, that will grab onto and hook onto right. and believe. Yeah. The story of, oh, I'm so tired today. And then, oh, this guy's really good this guy beat this guy and that means, and I lost to that guy, that means that by nature, you know, by by default, I'll be right. losing to him and, right. and then once you buy into those stories, you may as well just lay on the mat. <laughs> so, it's experience was like channeling that energy in a productive way. Yeah, yeah. And, and not listening to the stories, yeah. just saying, okay, maybe that's true, maybe yeah. it's not, <laughs> yeah. move forward, next.
1: I think one thing that struck me when you were talking about how that raw energy should be or is already being sort of tapped into by society, that caught me with the tribal elements of team sports <laughs> it is essentially like if when people are cheering for the Golden State Warriors or their football team or their baseball team, it seems to be that safe channel that society has created to allow people to get their tribal aggression out. Mm-hmm. Like they're letting someone else battle out their aggression and they get this sort of cheer on, sort of like very tribally or viscerally. Yeah. That seems to be the main pathway, but maybe you would agree to this. I'm curious to get your thoughts on this. I don't think that's like a great pathway because you're just watching other men or women do stuff and you're being very passive. While it might tap into that tribal instinct of like, you know, our team won, our team beat your team. And maybe that's good enough for some people, mm-hmm. but it seems to be a kind of a waste of energy. And again, I don't want to like this yeah. sports fans, obviously sports inspires people, et cetera, et cetera. But maybe this is Someone that wants to focus some of the intensity and energy on improving oneself—is mm-hmm. there a place to maybe help redirect some of that energy to not grant responsibility of, of your internal animal instinct to give someone else to be your avatar to fight? Mm. Is there a way to channel it internally to improve yourself? Mm. Curious, your thoughts on that?
0: Well, I definitely agree with you. Yeah. I never watched sports. I mean, I did like for you know small some days I would watch an event or one event at a time a year, yeah. but. I never was into sports because I wanted to be on the field, you know? Um, I think there are people who are just meant to be in the stands in life, you know? (laughs) There's nothing that's just where they are right now, you know, in this this life. So there's nothing wrong with that. But I think for anyone who's really wanting something for themselves, that being in the stands won't actually help you get there. And I think it satisfies a very surface level primal energy as far as being on a team and rooting. I think- more so like maybe in the mind and in the ego versus like some actual primal thing. So how could people channel their energy towards more, towards, I guess, doing it for themselves? Yeah. I think it just has to be a decision. I don't know the how exactly, but I would say the most important facet of that would be the decision to take matters into your own hands, right. to want to explore your edge in any sport. Yeah. When we're surfing our edge, look at all the best athletes, all of the best, most famous people who've done amazing things in the world, they were on their edge every single day, yeah. you know, their edge of comfort. So watching sports is just really comfortable for most people, yeah. you know, so there's nothing wrong with it. But yeah, I would say they just find the edge and playing in sports is an amazing way to right. yeah, crack I mean, that. Yeah, you know?
1: I think let's dive into this a little bit more. I mean, I think, do you think this is a learned behavior or is it genetic behavior or something that you're born with? I agree with you. Like we work with a lot of athletes, but like honestly, I'm not a big sports fan either. Right? Mm-hmm. Like my thing is not like go turn on the TV and, and root for other men playing a game. Mm-hmm. Right? It's like I'd rather do that myself or just do something active. I don't know where that came from internally. I mean, do you have a sense of when you wanted to be the person on the field versus the person in the stand? Do you think
0: that was learned? Do you think that's something you're born with? I think I mean, it's both. Okay. I think it's both. I was definitely born with a spirit that wanted to participate. You yeah. Know, no doubt about that. But there were so many times in my life where I could have chosen comfort, you know? Right. So I think it's a choice and it's cultivated, but it's also, there's like a blueprint that someone is born with as far as like propensity to do th- that sort of stuff. But for me, I don't even know how to relate in the stands because I have this internal fire on the field and in my life it was never a comfort for me it was never something that i actually got enough pleasure for to rest on and, and lean on so i right. don't i don't understand you know yeah <laughs> there's no judgment at all i just don't understand i can't relate to it yeah. you know
1: i just i think just for myself i think very similar i think it is a mix of nature and nurture i guess again maybe when you're like a kid you're growing up and my parents signed me up for like soccer little league baseball basketball you're just trying all these sports and you just realize it's a lot more fun to do that than like watch tv yeah right and then maybe like you have some early successes where you realize that you could be competent here and i think that mastery develops more and more confidence you fall in this you know this virtuous cycle Mm -hmm. and i think maybe that's one way to just inspire people to just start finding some sort of small mastery Mm -hmm. get better at it and get that positive loop going totally I think one thing that struck me that was really strange was when I was a freshman at Stanford, everyone would go to the football game and like, it was like a whole thing. Like, wow, like every single freshman, let's go see like the football team play. Like, these are like random classmates of yeah. mine. Like I didn't go to see football games in high school. Yeah. Like, I think I'm pretty good at what I do. And I was like a, you know, a nerdy computer scientist. Like okay. I'm doing important shit too, you know, let's go Aren't, play football. Right. Yeah. It, well, and it's like, why <laughs> yeah. are we all like spending like a whole freaking weekend to watch like a Game, mm-hmm. And I think that realization almost made me double down to not be just a person on the stands. Mm-hmm. Take mm-hmm. some agency, do something of value. Mm-hmm. And maybe if more people in society think that way, we would have more creations, more services, healthier people. people. healthier, yeah. yeah, healthier and happier people. Hopefully something like conversations like these hopefully inspires listeners and, and people on this edge of like, oh, should I just kind of tap out? yeah encourage them not to tap out don't be like the competitor they get crushed once they never show up again (laughs) right take that loss and then come back
0: yeah definitely
1: yeah cool so i want to keep following your story here so blue belt pan am champion i guess it was one of the seminal moments in your jiu-jitsu
0: career what was next the next thing which is basically will will lead us into what i really do for my living now and my real new passion my new jiu-jitsu yeah I got incredibly ill. October of 2013, I went from being this guy who lived in the Lower East Side. I got with all the women. I was a jujitsu champion. Like I made good money. Everything was good. I was suave. Yeah. To basically feeling like I was tripping on acid 24 7 without taking any drugs in a two week period of time. I went from this place to this whole new place in two weeks and it was just this quick decline of a losing of my psyche a fracturing of my psyche to put it into perspective i mean in those days i realized i started experiencing panic attacks intrusive thoughts depression that i never experienced in my life before just thoughts of doom and gloom thoughts of dying this sudden onset this is like you sudden onset okay was totally out of nowhere the levels of pain that I was experiencing was, again, as if I was in a, on a bad trip. The worst trip you've ever had in your life, if anyone, any viewer or you have had a trip right. on of acid or bad weed or anything, the worst 30 seconds of that trip, I lived there. I literally lived there. That's so you're
1: questioning your sanity. You're like, am I just on I, some crazy drug every trip? Every minute.
0: I thought I lost my mind. <laughs> I thought I completely lost my mind. Damn. Yeah. I thought I totally lost it and I had a head injury from jujitsu or- I had a psychotic breakdown. The bottom line is I thought I was going to end up in an institution. Whoa. Yeah. And basically, the first route was to take drugs. I started taking Xanax because I tried to find any drug I can to mask the pain. I I started approaching tons of women on the street because I was into street game. And that was one thing that I can get out of my funk if I picked up a girl on the street. You know, (laughs) so I was just like super depressed inside having panic attacks and going out on the street Just saying get a like a bump of excitement yeah, yeah exactly talking to a woman okay like hey there i'm josh you know i'd be kicking myself later if i didn't talk to you and i had a whole script you know yeah let's exchange numbers <laughs> i'll convince you to get a drink with me one night you know yeah. and, and it still worked even in my dark days you know so it's it like small double mean hits okay and then i would text them and then all of a sudden i would be high for a minute and then fall right back into my misery and i was like okay this isn't working what's next Tried drugs none of that worked what's next I talked to my family. I was like, look, guys, I'm, I'm going through something very, very serious right now, and I need help. And I went to a psychiatrist. You know, that was the next the next route for me. So I went to a psychiatrist, and and in an hour, I got diagnosed with everything under the sun, major depressive disorder, major anxiety disorder, bipolar, whatever, you, anything, ADHD, all of it, which I've thrown it all away now, and, and I can get into that. They, were they doing blood markers, everything? Just all sorts of tests, all sorts of psychoanalysis, or in the it? beginning, no, no blood tests. They were just
1: like, Hey, you just have some we think this is some mental disorder. Take some drugs. Oh man,
0: you you may be a far way away from conventional psychiatry. Yeah. The okay. conventional psychiatry is literally an overweight dude in a chair, like <laughs> waiting for you to say the words depression to give you a prescription for three different Fair things. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
1: Like, yeah. I'm curious, like, like, were people looking yeah. at endocrinology? Were people looking at this, you know, oh, testosterone, no. like, I think Dude, insulin, so glucose? You're ahead
0: of the game. You don't understand. When people start, and and, and I know where you're at because right. I feel that I'm in a yeah. similar place now of like heavy metals, toxicity, blood tests. Of right. course. Yeah, When things first start, where people are in their box, in their world, where my family was, where my field was in, my consciousness. It was not in any of this. You were just searching for help. You're like, Yeah. Okay. It it was depression. I was in Jersey, New York. So right away, more closed-minded in California, you know. So I started taking these medications. I took them for four months and they were absolutely horrible. They made me numb. They made me feel like a zombie. Right. And I flushed them down the toilet one day. The day I flushed them down the toilet was the day that I decided to go to the Amazon jungle to drink ayahuasca.
1: Yeah, Yeah. yeah, yeah. We actually had a couple. Folks from Heroic Hearts Foundation that basically uh, use ayahuasca as a way for therapeutics for PTSD for veterans. Okay, so using that channel, okay, as a way to broaden the horizons on ayahuasca. So yes,
0: okay. So yeah, basically DMT,
1: but yeah. from a plant, more traditional method.
0: Yeah, it's DMT from the chacruna leaves, and it's an MAOI from the copy vine, and they're brewed together. And introduced orally allows the DMT to bypass the blood-brain barrier. And you basically have a deep hallucinogenic experience for about five, six hours. And usually there's some tradition. And when it's done the right way, there's tradition, ceremony. Um, There are people who buy ayahuasca off the internet and do it in their room. I would not recommend (laughs) that at all. Okay, so you were just like, all right, the standard
1: stuff isn't working for me. I'm going to hop Brazil and- do some drugs. Peru. Come on, don't be
0: ridiculous. Brazil. Okay, okay. okay. <laughs> no, I'm not yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I basically looked at my life and I said, no one that I know in my life right now, I feel actually knows what's happening to me. Okay. Everyone I've talked to, I can look at them in the eye and know that they're completely dumbfounded by what I'm going through and they can only offer their best. Right. And I appreciate them, but what I'm going through is something new. And it's something different than I've ever learned before. Right. I realized at that point in time that it was something new. It was a new experience, aside from all my conditioned beliefs and thoughts. Right. And I had a fork in the road. On one end was these medications and an eventual probably an institution and probably a hundred extra pounds on my body. Right. The other route was to die or to go crazy trying to figure out the root of this illness. Yeah. So that's when I learned about, in those moments, in those weeks before making that decision, I, I learned about ayahuasca through like, a friend, through online. I mean, online. Okay. Depression, natural depression remedy. So you're just et searching, et you're figuring out, you're just oh, like self-teaching at this point. Totally, you're like, totally. The
1: docs aren't working; they're wasting my time. Yep. doing Giving, hopping
0: on on pharmaceuticals. Yep. Any other routes here? So I flew to Peru. The ayahuasca is in the four surrounding the Amazon: Brazil, Colombia, Peru, and um, Ecuador. Okay. I flew to Peru, and I did one ceremony. I was supposed to do seven. And I literally had such a bad experience. I was not ready for it. I was in such bad shape. My physical body was filthy with toxicity, with remnants of pharmaceutical drugs. And I had a, a trip from hell, which could be the whole episode if we wanted it to be. <laughs> is this like three months after the initial onset? Six months in? This was May 2014. So this is seven months, uh seven months after okay, the initial you're just onset. doing
1: seven months of just being in hell and trying everything, nothing working.
0: Every day was torture. And I guess I I skipped that part just to let you understand every day was pure, utter torture. You couldn't roll. Like Uh, I trained. I trained. trained, You're training as a coping mechanism. Okay. And it was a desperate coping mechanism. Okay. For me.
1: So you were still physically pretty decent shape. It wasn't just like people
0: up. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't just like, yo,
1: you just got fat for seven months. No. You were trying to like cope and survive as much as you could. So you're in fairly good shape and you're now you're in Peru yeah in the first ayahuasca ceremony yeah. you're not good. okay yeah just a
0: brutal hellish nightmarish experience a lot of throwing up and a lot of torturous thoughts and i was petrified and i flew home the next day oh. and i went straight into a mental hospital actually i went straight into uh, a mental hospital in new jersey yeah we can la- laugh a good thing we can laugh at it now <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's pretty wild to be like okay yeah. i just came back from a- home from a crazy
1: ayahuasca trip i'm certifiably insane now yeah i'm checking myself in that's like, what we're that at happened. that level and
0: again ayahuasca was this foreign thing so now i went from foreign thing here in new jersey to foreign thing here in jungle and now i'm back home and i have to tell them this foreign thing that i did <laughs> and there's so many hooks to get to latch onto as far as right. what could be wrong with me because right. they're like oh that ayahuasca stuff you're fucked for life yeah you know? so everywhere i went in my mind was just Torture, you know, right. I'm screwed. I irreversibly damaged my brain with this <laughs> tribal drug, <you> yeah, know? <laughs> yeah. So I woke up the next day in the in the hospital after three days of not sleeping because of the ayahuasca. I couldn't sleep, and actually, I almost brought the plane down. I was in the back of the plane, literally in. Convulsions, panic attacks, crying—I couldn't make oh. it home. I literally couldn't make it home. I was in so much agony, mental anguish, and I literally—they had to make an announcement on the airplane for Benzo Diazapina, which is in Benzo is in yeah. Spanish, and it was a Colombian airline for whatever reason traveling through Peru. And uh, a firefighter came in the back, and a Colombian nurse came, and they gave me a, a Xanax, and I got escorted off the plane first. Yeah, Not the first person off the plane straight into JFK police. They weren't security. They were police. Yeah. And they basically searched every cavity. They thought I was a drug dealer. Yeah. And thank God I probably could have been there for another day, but the dude saw my ears and he said, You train MMA? I'm like, oh jujitsu. He's like, what happened to you, man? What the fuck happened to you on the plane? Yeah. And I was like, I said, I went to Peru. I wanted to take a vacation and I forgot my anxiety medication. I didn't tell him about ayahuasca, right. you know, I forgot my anxiety medication. He goes, Oh man, I'm sorry to hear that. All right, you're good. You look like a good guy. Go ahead. You're, you're good to go. Yeah. You know, And, I, and, I, and that's and I went straight to the hospital. I called yeah. my dad and I said, dad, I'm scared I'm gonna kill myself. We gotta to go to the hospital. Wow. Yeah. So it's a
1: full on panic attack and you just like feeling what, like claustrophobic in the plane, just everything.
0: The only way I could describe it to someone, who there's no way I could, that anyone who hasn't gone through this could ever possibly relate to it. Okay, they, they may be able to understand it or grasp it from their right. mind when I explain this, but there's just no way. It's basically like is it the feeling you would get if someone had holding a gun to your head. Imagine how your heart would start racing right. and you'd start sweating and you'd start run, running through your life. Yeah, That's the feeling I was living in. That type of fight or flight. For like 72 hours straight. And many days before that. Jeez. But, but it was the ayahuasca intensified. It. Yeah. So I'm in the hospital and I wake up after three days of not sleeping. Yeah. And I vowed to myself that I was going to go back to the jungle. Imagine that. They gave me the sleeping medication. I fell asleep. I slept for like 16 hours. I woke up and I said, whatever it was that was inside of me was inside of me. Anyway, ayahuasca just brought it to the surface. I didn't actually think anything bad about ayahuasca or anything like that. I just simply woke up with the deep knowing that I was going to go back and I called my friend the next day and I said, I'm literally in the hospital calling my friend. Everyone thinks I'm nuts at this point. I'm like, get some mushrooms. I, we need to do mushrooms, I need to build up my way to being able to handle ayahuasca again. Six days later, I get out of the hospital and I did two ketamine injections. Ketamine is legal for people who are suicidal in New York mm-hmm. and you trip out and it's somewhat therapeutic, but I would never do it again. But I was wanting to die every day, so I just constantly needed to invest my whole soul, my whole being into something in order to live another day, a, another week, right? To yeah. give myself hope. Yeah. So I did those ketamine injections, and immediately after the ketamine injections me and my friends started doing mushroom ceremonies in brooklyn in the brooklyn like botanical gardens and we would drink these mushroom teas and we would spend six eight hours in the fields and have these deep revelations and i would cry and he was basically a healer without being a healer like he was just had a healing spirit And, and i just would cry to him and building up this internal strength this internal witnessing of this deep darkness as opposed to getting caught in it every time and I started focusing on diet and fasting and started understanding how important it is that whatever we put in our bodies is what we get out. See, up until this moment, I could have never imagined that anything I put in my body affected my mind. Hmm. Right. I mean, for you, you're like, of course, right? right. But where I was in my consciousness, being a, a Jersey bro, it wasn't even, it didn't even register. Right. You know, I knew it registered in terms of physical. Fitness. fitness so you're doing like some sort of like yeah protein powder totally some, like bodybuilding stuff sports right? performance but in mental health i thought that was a whole other category of right. life right so i started diving into all of this these things and i started cleaning my body and sure enough six months later i met a woman who happened to be the communications director of the largest ayahuasca center in the world and uh-huh. she happened to go to my high school and i never knew her in high school <sighs> And we connected, I told her about my experience and she was amazing and beautiful. And we started dating. I was like, <laughs> I was a
1: mess, but we started dating. So six she, months, you were still a mess, but you are starting to come back or just you were holding on?
0: I was basically one hand on a ledge yeah. with a really, really good grip. Okay. That like, I wasn't gonna fucking let go, okay. but, but I was holding on, okay. you know? And there was a 5,000 foot drop of right. me, you know? So I wasn't progressing. I wasn't so the bottom point, if you could say, would be the tri- the airplane right back. We from- haven't even come close to the bottom. okay, point. okay let's let's continue the story. Okay. <laughs> yeah, that's like that was yeah. like a vacation compared to where I went okay. after three and a half years. yeah. So I hope we have time for it all, yeah. but I'll try and accelerate it here. So so basically, I went to the Amazon a second time and I spent six months in the Amazon, five months maybe and, and then a month in the mountains. And I drank ayahuasca 21 more times. Well, I fasted for weeks on end and I meditated every day all day. And I walked on the ground barefoot and gave myself self-love every single step. I had this practice where I would do for two hours a day and just every step, I love you, Josh. I love you, Josh. Everywhere I went except for love or at least the thought of love was torture. So I just was constantly trying to stay afloat, dealing with this depression, this panic, this anxiety feeling like I was dying all day, like almost like a meat hook was in my gut and in my heart. That's what I felt like every day, all day. I mean,
1: 21 ceremonies were these like little bumps that seemed to have started working. I mean, or why did you do so many if you were still in this Mm -hmm. like torturous situation?
0: Ayahuasca cleared out so much junk and cleared my intuition and revealed to me the aliveness of the earth, the aliveness Mm -hmm. of me as a body the aliveness of the fact that I was a spirit in a human body. I felt like avatar at times for minutes at a time, I would realize that I was this avatar in a body temporarily inhabiting this physical vessel for this lifetime. Right. That was, those were the conclusions I came to through the medicine. So there was revelations and there was a new paradigm that was opening for me, Yeah. but the root, the suffering didn't go away. It was like, imagine I could have this amazing, beautiful thought of wisdom and light and then my homeostasis always Trat got you back, back to down. this place. Okay, so you kept doing it because you saw this oxygen. as a kind of a breath of fresh air, but you would revert. I saw the oxygen and I didn't know where else to turn. At okay. this point, I had tried float tanks, supplements, diets, fasting, meditation, Vipassana retreats, you know Vipassana 10 day yeah. retreats. Yeah. So silent retreats. Yes, yeah, silent meditation yeah. retreats. I tried everything Man. I could find on Google. <laughs> That's, yeah. So I was like, okay, it's ayahuasca or it's death, you know? In the sense that, like ayahuasca, you saw the most potential. The native indigenous shamans, they held something so deep in their eyes, in their, in their speech, in their in their ceremonies, that there was no other person in my life that I could feel that I could put my life in their hands. Okay. When I was with the shamans, I surrendered. I said, I know you guys know what's going on with me. I know you understand the level of illness that I'm dealing with right now. It's in your court. I couldn't do that with a psychiatrist. I couldn't do that with my family, with my friends. Right. Even world-renowned doctors who I had spoken to up until that point. I reached out to every hallucinogenic doctor on Google. I talked to all of them. All right. For whatever reason, they just decided to talk to this random dude from Jersey because of the way I wrote to them. You know, right. I talked to—I um, don't want to go into names because yeah. I'm saying that they didn't help me. Yeah. but <laughs> yeah, All those dudes who are in maps and all—I've talked to so many of those dudes when I was just like— <laughs> A Jersey bro with right. no name, with no nothing. Right. <laughs> they would just pick up the phone. And so it talk wasn't to just me. like you
1: just want to do a bunch of drugs in Peru. It was like you tried no. every single path and the
0: only thing that you saw success in was through these ayahuasca ceremonies. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there was no desire for drugs. There was no desire to trip out Right. purely to escape suffering. Which so is
1: helpful for context, right? Just to make sure that, like, hey, like we're not just like This guy just likes being high. No, no
0: way. Yeah. No way. Hated being high. Every ceremony was torture. Yeah. Once in a while, I would have like a a ceremony of light, you know? Yeah. But mostly it was just pure darkness. Okay. And then again, to answer your question in in a deeper way, which also brings us to the next place in the story, the shamans would always tell me, they would laugh at me and they would (sighs) say similar things along this line: of, Tu tiene grande medicina y tu tiene grande problema también. And what they meant is you have a big medicine for the world, but you also have a big problem that you're dealing with right now. And I had read about shamanic initiations. See, the only thing I could grasp onto at this point, which may sound crazy to a lot of people, is that I was a shaman or a healer, and that this was my initiation into being a healer. Because for generations and many, many points in time, the shaman in a village was actually the one who got very, very sick. And then the community would come around and chant and help them go through the experience we call it schizophrenia, they call it shamanic initiation. And eventually after enough time, that individual would transcend the experience and actually hold these amazing qualities and visions and lessons from the spirit world in order to bring it to the community, to help the community. Interesting. So I was like, okay, so I'm a shaman and this is my shamanic initiation. And the reason I say that is because these shamans went through voices and auditory and fi- and visual hallucinations which I did go through as well on a regular basis and yeah and they were tortured so so it wasn't just normal depression normal right. anxiety it was torment so I couldn't put my faith in any book that I read about depression interesting like, so really, like these shamans almost saw that they were you were cut from
1: the same cloth as them or like you weren't like some western tourist trying to go they on knew some that. drug no trip. no they knew that you're like oh this okay they treated
0: yeah. me with the
1: utmost respect and and almost like welcomed you into their community of being a shaman basically
0: interesting basically not so simple as that but they knew that i was holding something and going through something that was different than a normal westerner okay yeah so that leads me to the next phase of the journey which after months and months of this i couldn't get to the root of my illness so i i flew back home and i was a caddy at a country club and I was carrying golf bags, you know, 36 holes a day often, making really good money, saving up money for my next ayahuasca adventure. I spent nine months in Jersey, drinking two gallons of distilled water a day, fasting for sometimes seven, 10. I think I was fasted once for 12 days. I still got up and went to the caddy nice. yard, almost fainted. Jeez. Um, the longest water fast I've done in seven days. So. Okay, awesome, so, so twelve days fasting. is fasting, yeah. amazing. Yeah. I did juices, I think, okay. during that fast, I think. I've done so many fasts that I can't remember <laughs> which one was which. Okay. So I'm caddying, I'm saving up money, I'm living in torment, and I'm still working on myself. Meditation for hours a day, stretching for hours a day. To give you an idea of how much suffering I was in, I would wake up and I would have to put on meditation music and sing to myself in order to pretend that I was happy. I would literally walk around my basement. People would think I was like euphoric. I would just sing these chants and these songs in order to just get moments of peace. Moments, because you never want to stop trying to do the things that are supposed to be good for you. Mm -hmm. That's, to me, that felt like giving up, you know? Even though the things that were supposed to be good for me didn't I'm surprised that like you even like got out of bed. Like, I mean, you still have enough of
1: you inside that had a desire to continue to wake up, get out of bed. panic attacks.
0: It was like laying in bed was torture. Everywhere I went was torture, but panic attacks sparked up my whole electrical, system, you know, okay. I, I had energy at the same time as being tormented, uh, okay. which is extra torment. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I go and I do this dieta in the jungle. I do what's known as an isolation dieta, which is an apprenticeship with the shamans because the whole time I was there they said, "Tu necesitas dieta. Tu necesitas aprender. You need to learn from us. We'll teach you." So I flew to their home village in Cantamana. no Westerners, just me and the shamans. They didn't speak any English, Shipibo shamans. And my plan was that I was going to learn how to be a shaman and I was gonna transcend this illness once and for all. So I flew to the Amazon a third time, Cantamana, Peru, and I'm doing a isolation dieta where I was a 30 minute walk inside the Amazon jungle Once we were already on a remote island in the Amazon, once we were on the island, 30 minute walk into the jungle, I was to have no human contact for 90 days and drink ayahuasca three times a week. And the tree, Wiedakaspi, which is the tree I was doing a dieta with, which is a tree that all the shamans told me was uh, the one that a lot of shamans did at their earliest age, 12, 13 years old, in order to prove their discipline to the plants. So it was a powerful, powerful tree. So a dieta is where you basically drink the sap of the tree in congruence, in conjunction with ayahuasca.
1: The shamans weren't trying to oversee you. They They
0: came and visited me once a
1: day. Just to check that you weren't dead. Basically, Basically, yeah. Whoa.
0: But to them, death is funny. (sighs) To them, death is just part of life. Okay. There's no part of them that views death as bad. And the reason I know that is because I almost died in a ceremony and one of the shamans at the very end, literally, one shaman kept fighting for me. See, this, all, this whole story is just nuts, you know? But I like, mean, it is. Well, I mean, I think
1: it's, this is super interesting because yeah, yeah. I think we've all heard about people doing ayahuasca, but yeah. I don't know there's that many people that talk about going through a shamanic induction yeah. and doing this sort of dieta. This is like very new to me. Okay. so It's very interesting. Okay.
0: Well, basically they don't, yeah, they don't view death as something bad. And the reason I know that is because I almost died in a ceremony, actually almost died, not ego death. And I watched as one of the shamans literally dropped his hand. So it's was like, I think we lost him in Spanish. I think we lost him. And his girlfriend was still fighting for me. And I eventually survived. I literally was out of my body. It was an outer body experience. And I didn't care that he did that. I didn't have any anger. But I learned through my time with the shamans that there's no Western grasping towards death. They just know that I'm a soul and that I'll go somewhere new and, or whatever, whatever, right. however they view the world. Right. It's not so doom and gloom of death, you know, right. they don't look at, oh my God, his family's going to think this, his friends, different so yeah, this. Western binary type of thing. It was like, okay, this guy's yeah. transitioning on exactly. to the next life or whatever. And we did the best we could. Okay. So in any case, they checked on me and the dieta was agonizing. I ate fish and plantains every day. So they're bringing food, right? They brought me food okay. twice a day. Okay. And would check in. And I was just walking around the jungle naked for it was supposed to be 90 days. I literally walk around ass naked, full body electrocution, anxiety, panic, and prayer. I was just praying, walking around, giving myself love, showering in the rain all day, every day, literally outside naked. That with sounds kind of beautiful, to be honest. It was beautiful. <laughs> it was fucking beautiful if I could have been in a state to have received right. the beauty. I have pictures now of it, and yeah. I just think, Oh my God, if I was in this state that I'm in now. I'm not thinking about like, were there bugs, leeches? I mean. I'm sleeping with cockroaches running across my face on a regular basis. (laughs) Mosquitoes, literally four or five monkeys would hang 30 yards away from me right before bed. And in the worst mood I was in, it almost seemed like they would torment me and just like literally taunt me. Like, it's like they knew when I was in a bad mood or something. It, It sounds crazy, but like they would just. Totally fuck with me and make noise all night.
1: And were you afraid of like a leopard coming down, eating you? I mean, in
0: all of my time in the jungle, I saw many venomous snakes, which a few of them I almost stepped on. I literally twice. I almost, I was five, literally six inches away from a venomous snake. And one time someone else called my name and I misstepped. Another time my lantern was dull and I wasn't looking at the ground and I literally, for whatever reason, and this is the beauty of ayahuasca, as it connects you to some type of intuition, yeah. despite what what our Western minds may think. This dull light. I ended up having it on top of my head. It was hardly working, and I was about to take a step, and all of a sudden, something came in my consciousness. I took the light, went on the ground. It was a red. Uh, I think it's called a coil snake that I was literally four inches away from, and probably could have killed me. You know, yeah. but I think they had they had some protocols on the island in order yeah. to help you, but. In any case, I almost died a few times in the jungle. Wild. <laughs> I mean, just 90 so ninety days butt naked, just being a primal animal. Yeah, but and, I couldn't, I didn't last 90 days. Okay, I tapped out after 30. You're like, I have enough. And yes to all what you said, primal, animal, yeah. just all of the above, staring at the moon, enjoying the rain. Getting bitten by mosquitoes every single night. Yeah. Uh, my place didn't have mosquitoes, outside did. Okay, okay. Snakes. There was an anaconda, but I never saw it. Right. And there apparently was jaguars, but I never saw them. Right. And and I was walking thirty minutes by myself with this little headlamp. Every time I would walk, I would just be like, I was praying for a jaguar to eat me. You know, like I'm walking (laughs) and just praying for an easy death. Yeah. And it wouldn't count as a suicide, so I could (laughs) bypass the earthly laws of suicide and 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 not be a tortured soul. You know. Yeah. I walked into the shaman's cove after thirty days, and I literally said. No mas, no puedo, no puedo mas. And they looked at me and they said, Are you sure? Are you sure? I said, I can't, I'm done. And they closed the dieta. They basically said, this is very, very bad. Okay, we can't do anything. We'll close the dieta. And they did their little ceremony. They do a lot of breath work and chants. Yeah. closed the dieta and I flew home.
1: And also for clarity. So during the dieta, every yeah. day
0: you were doing ayahuasca? Three times a week. Okay. okay and only eating fish and plantains. This is really the only true helpless moment of my stories, what I get into now, where basically I flew to Miami because I couldn't go to New York to see, I couldn't go home to see my family. I was distraught. I was fractured. You can look at photos of me from back then. I was 30 pounds lighter than I am now. Yeah, Fractured psyche. I couldn't carry conversation. I was petrified to do everything. Right. Everything from leaving a room, to going to the bathroom, to going onto a plane everything was petrifying right do you feel like a failure because you tapped out in 30 days i felt like a failure i felt like i had given up hope because if it wasn't a shamanic initiation then there was nothing else to latch on to okay there was nothing else i was just crazy simply put i was psychotic and everyone else was right yeah and i lost my mind and i started to believe that and then i flew to miami and my best friend edin lambert who stuck by my side for three and a half years when every single other person in my life gave up on me, he still believed in me. And he offered me home, shelter, food, paid for acupuncture sessions. And he said, dude, I don't know how to help you. Yeah. I don't know what you're going through. I just know that I'm here for you. And we got you. Me and my mom, we got you. Yeah. I spent a the month there, pure, utter torment, not getting any better. And I called my mom. I told them all the truth about how bad I was. And I flew home. And this is when suicide actually was at the forefront of my consciousness. I had experienced suicidal thoughts from hundreds and thousands of times before that. But this actually got me to a place of actually the majority of me started wanting to kill myself. When I got home, I had nothing left, man. I had nothing left in the tank. That was the first time I felt what actual desire for suicide was, not just suicidal thoughts, you know, like what actually a deep... Internal desire to like check out was, you know, and it was the scariest fucking thing in the world, man. And it's all a big blur, but I was scavenging for something to grasp onto my last ditch effort at life. And then I remember these people in the jungle talking about Iboga. Iboga is another hallucinogenic done in Africa. It's very helpful for heroin addicts. And it's a 36 hour intense hallucinogenic experience. Like people die on it. It's fucking crazy. And it's a rite of passage for people in Africa. And I said, "Okay, I'm doing this before I kill myself. Right. I'm probably gonna kill myself, but I have to Might do this. Might as well do this. I have to yep. give every last effort yep. at life." Booked the trip to Iboga. I paid a shaman four thousand dollars. Where is the book Like East Africa, West East Africa. Africa East. Twenty three hour flight. Right? Okay, I didn't even know how to get on the flight. I decided Which country I is it in? Gabon. Okay. Yeah, I was just recently in Tanzania. So were you? Yeah, okay. Yeah. Leading up to the Iboga was basically my parents trying to help me, my mom's boyfriend desperately trying to help me, all these people, Edin, my stepmom, basically just calling me, checking up on me. My uncle, how are you? Don't do anything stupid. How are you? They knew how fucking broken I was. And eventually, I quietly and cautiously planned this trip to Africa. I only told Edin. I didn't tell anyone else. Paid for my flight. Opened up $25,000 in credit cards, like new credit cards. My credit was perfect. I was like, look, if I'm going to die, money is pixels on a computer screen. Who cares? Paid all this money that I didn't have to the shaman for the flight, everything. And I was two days away from getting on that plane. And I started thinking about mercury fillings, my mercury fillings in my mouth, mercury, thinking about it, dreaming about it, ruminating on it touching them in my, my, like, like maybe these are, I I read an article a year before that, that heavy metals or braces or mercury in the mouth can cause an antenna, you know, like an antenna to the spiritual world to be faulty because it's metal and it's conductive. And I was like, I was like, that's bullshit, but I'm gonna get these fillings out because money doesn't mean anything. Right. $3,000 later, got those fillings out, came home 24 hours to go before getting on the plane. Google, mercury poisoning stories enter my life would never be the same after that i read this woman's story her name is connie fox she's an amazing beautiful human being and she was the only story that i had ever read up until this moment that resonated with me aside from shamanic initiations this level of torment and inner unrest was the only thing i had ever seen up until that point i broke down in tears i called screamed for my mom called my dad on speakerphone and i said you guys almost lost your son I was 24 hours away from getting on this plane to Africa. I found out what's wrong with me. You may not believe it. You have to believe me, and I need money. <laughs> you know? yeah. And I need help, I need support. And there's tons more to the story. I understand we're probably going way longer than you normally do, but so I'll accelerate it here in that I basically went from being on death's door in every way physically, emotionally, spiritually possible to seven months later regained my mind my clarity i did an intense mercury and heavy metal and parasite detoxification protocol and i shot out hundreds hundreds of worms and yeah tapeworms rope worms round worms that probably happened when you were in the amazon maybe (laughs) yeah partially or or, yeah a lot of people have worms though in the united states too i think (laughs) according to my yeah yeah. my research (laughs) and detoxing the heavy metals out of my body and healing my gut which, by the and way, I, like this was like chelation. This was—I didn't do any chelation at, until that point. Okay. At that point, but I did gut healing because my gut was just just destroyed. Yeah. I couldn't digest any foods. Now we're two and a half years later, and I think the, one of the most stable people I know. Wow, and very grounded, and I don't have any depression and no panic, reasonable life anxiety. What, what were these sleep. interventions? What were these heavy
1: metal detox? So, if it wasn't chelation, then then yeah. what are the te- typical
0: techniques then? With severe toxicity, the way I had it chelation is a disaster because what's happening when someone is as toxic as i was is that there's tons of metals floating around the gut right causing inflammation preventing proper digestion and when we chelate we pull metals from inside the cell and they go right towards the central channel to be evacuated right. if that central channel is already destroyed you're further stripping the body of minerals further destroying the body of its harmony. So it's like too far gone for a chelation therapy. Totally. Okay. Which, is, which is partially the clients that I work with today who huh. are too far gone for chelation. I made a, a miraculous recovery without detoxing any heavy metals from my cells. This is what I believe is a huge misconception in the holistic healing world right mm-hmm. now. So what were the interventions that you did that? Like the modalities, the yeah. exact, yeah. So basically... I started with gut healing. I started with uh, mast cell stabilization and gut healing. So I took something called ketodafin, which is a prescription antihistamine and mast cell stabilizer. And there's other ways to do that now. You don't necessarily have to get the prescription, but that's something that I took that allowed my body to be able to handle supplements. Hmm. I couldn't handle supplements or foods. I was so sensitive to everything. This calmed the immune system down in order for me to be able to handle the things that are good uh, for me.
1: Connecting the dots here. So you went yeah. from, okay, mercury poisoning. Yeah. This might be the thing. Yeah. To recovery. Yeah. I guess it was like, what were the steps there? Would you like, okay, I got to talk to like heavy metal mercury poison experts? You work with doctors? Like, I, I signed did you up just,
0: for that woman,
1: the okay. woman who
0: I read that story, Connie's story Connie Fox, I signed up with her right away. Yeah. Okay, and did she have a medical background, or no. she just went through? She personal? just went through it. Okay, she went through it, and I trusted her. And when you're in that situation, credentials mean nothing. Right. I mean, basically, <laughs> like, I know, it's, it's, it's interesting to hear. Yeah. Like, okay, yeah. you try like
1: literally everything. Yeah. yeah. You about to go on this thirty-six woman. hour, thirty-six yeah. <laughs> yeah. hour boga trip. Yeah. And then you saw a mercury poisoning story, mm-hmm. and you just started talking to her, and then going through the interventions that she did. Yeah. And it started off with
0: something like an antihistamine base it was a combination of her and this other doctor that i had eventually seen a few months later and another person on the internet who i don't even want to mention his name because i I don't believe in what he does and he's not a good human being okay so i don't even want to give him (laughs) the credit that guy that guy Yeah. yeah so basically yeah it was a combo effect but the main thing was gut healing okay this was the core principle that saved my life, huh. not detoxification. It was actually healing my gut, reducing inflammation, and replenishing minerals. Because okay. whenever you're toxic with heavy metals, we're also very nutrient deficient. Mm. So the combo is what makes people sick, not only the toxicity. Interesting. Yeah. So, through the combination of
1: these different, I guess, experts through their own experiences in a doctor, yeah. and then your own practical experience trying their techniques, yeah. you kind of have a, your own sort of system or theory or framework and how. Sort of look at this now. Yeah.
0: Okay. I, I felt that I took, everyone had their own little medicine and their amazing little wisdom to offer me. And it was all beautiful, amazing pieces of advice. My, at that point, even though I was distraught, I was like a master with my own body. You know, I, I yeah. was, I was fucked, but I was like, I knew my body. And so I was starting to learn all of these things and experience everything and yeah. put it in, I would say, no, 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 I don't think that should go like this. And I started tweaking and I became an experiment. As soon as I recovered some resemblance of sanity and didn't have to rely on one person's words, I became my own little doctor. Yeah. And that's when I started tweaking with things and coming up with my own protocol basically. And no
1: one over the last like three years of you going through hell, no one tried to do a mercury poisoning test on you?
0: No. I had heard of it. I knew about it, <laughs> but it, you got to understand it didn't register to me as something that was even feasible. To me, with ayahuasca, I thought everything was spiritual, emotional. Right? How could metal, how could these fillings in my teeth or sushi, yeah. how could they make me depressed? It, it, I couldn't see it, Yeah, I mean, it's which a, is why I a, understand why people don't, can't believe it. I,
1: well, I mean, it's just wild that through all the doctors, no one decided to give you that sort of test if you're going to just screen for everything possible.
0: If I'm honest, I really only saw Mostly conventional Western medicine. Yeah, maybe I saw one naturopath. Uh, and a but, you, but you would think
1: that even in standard Western care, that you know, if there's some psychotic breakdown, you would do some sort of heavy metal toxicity screen. That that, that seems to be a, like a standard care.
0: Yes, I, uh, it maybe must it have been It wasn't then. Is it now? I, I don't. I haven't been a doctor in a long time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm not a doctor either. But I imagine that doctors on the, that we have on the program. I mean, it seems that like. That there's a standard lab test for heavy metal toxicity.
0: Well, there is a blood test, right? The problem, and on all engineers and people who work with uh, industrial exposure, they get right. blood tested. Problem: mercury doesn't show up in the blood. Most heavy metals leave the blood within 24 hours. They go into your bone. They settle right? into your bones, yeah. organs, tissues. So yeah. blood tests are useless. Huh. So to answer your question, yes, all doctors do blood tests. They're useless, though. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, there are probably some doctors who go a little deeper and we'll right. do a urine test or a hair test, but. I would say that they're probably coming more alive to that now but at the time i would say majority of western medicine conventional medicine practitioners didn't do that okay wow so at least not the ones i went
1: yeah no that's interesting and i guess
0: have you tried to measure mercury now i tried a year after okay which was a year and a half ago yeah and i went from the one of the highest levels of the company i'd ever seen to one third.
1: So this time. is, a, I guess, more of a specialized. Either go seek this kind of test diagnostic
0: yourself. It's called an HTMA. Okay. Yeah, hair test mineral analysis. Right. That's what I thought. Like
1: a lot of the heavy metal poison, you can tell from hair. Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah.
0: And then there's provoked urine tests, which are very dangerous for people who are really sick. Okay. Because they're chelating, so they're doing the final step. Right. I believe should be the final step. They're doing that first. I see. Right. So people have there's horror stories of people who are very very sick doing the oral chelation in order to test their urine and then they get more sick. And at that stage of sickness, every increment matters, you know, getting worse to someone in that place. It's like, you can't imagine. It's like having a hundred knives in your body and then someone coming with another sword, you know, right in the middle,
1: you know? (laughs) And then for the folks who might not know what chelation is, you want to quickly describe
0: chelation as a therapeutic chelation is basically giving the body certain chemicals, herbs, sometimes synthetic that actually signal to the cell to purge the heavy metal from the body. So when a body has many nutrients, cells have different nutrients attached to them. When a body is toxic and malnourished, cells will actually grab onto metals instead of a mineral. Hmm. So instead of selenium, a cell will grab onto mercury. Once it's there, it's tight. It's in there. It's locked in. It's dangerous to let it go because when you release it, it goes into the blood. Right. The body knows that it never wants heavy metals floating through the blood. That's when you're going psycho when they're in the blood. It's like not metabolizable, right? Like the body doesn't break it down. So just
1: stuck in there. Yes. And floating around basically.
0: Yeah. So chelation signals to the body to purge on an individual right. cellular level. And then binds to the heavy
1: metal and allows you to sort of urinate it out. Sometimes, yeah,
0: sometimes these chelators are also binding agents. Sometimes you have to take binders in addition, like okay. microsilica, charcoal, clays, zeolites, yep. and these things will actually grab onto the heavy metal to prevent it from being redistributed. Okay. Yeah. So it's pretty
1: wild. So you basically self-diagnosed, essentially, mercury <laughs> poisoning, and then through some consultations with a practitioner and a doctor... essentially purge out the heavy metal toxicity and that was sort of proven by a hair and a urine test
0: yeah i never did a urine test okay but Uh, the hair test test showed that i reduced my mercury dramatically means nothing to me though i don't take tests into account okay hair tests are very inaccurate i understand the desire to to have evidence i totally understand that And, and if i was more of a salesman, I would probably say, I have strategically <laughs> proved, but I just yeah. don't. My truth is that it means nothing to me because many, many people test false lows. So mm. if their body's not healthy enough to actually remove the metals to the hair follicles, they'll have very low levels on their hair test. Interesting. Furthermore, when it comes to detoxification, it's not even only heavy metals that are the problem. There are thousands of new chemicals that have been introduced to the environment, plastics, estrogen-like substances. Yeah that don't show up on any test. I would say, someone could give me a test that has zero heavy metals, zero parasites, zero everything, and I would literally say, okay, great, now detox. you know, Because it can only help, it can't hurt, I don't feel how it can hurt. So that's an interesting, I mean, one,
1: I mean, I think there's clearly some signal here, just from subjective experiences of of you improving. And I think from that signal, how do we tease out placebo with data? And I think hopefully we can start tying more and more rigorous processes to formalize this and also present it to more people, right? Because if it's actually helping people, let's build more and more frameworks yeah. and data around. It is my approach? Listen, to some, you know, a crazy journey like this. Totally,
0: and and I think that's happening now. Yeah, I, it's not my expertise, but I think dudes like Shade, Quicksilver, Scientific, and there are people in the detox community who yeah. are very, very science yeah. and, and fact and analytical based, and 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 it's all revealing the same truth right. that detox yeah. is real. Yeah, and I think it's all necessary to
1: push a movement forward. 100%. Right. I think you have these anecdotes, these personal like healing stories. And then you also have that data, that randomized controlled trial to just back up and concretize these anecdotes and these stories. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting, the buzzword of detox. Mm-hmm. Let's drill into that a little bit. Yeah. So on one side you have people saying detox. It's a buzzword, doesn't mean anything. In your context, what do you mean by detox? Mm-hmm. What do you think of the argument that detox is a useless word? <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people giving detox a bad name. Yeah, Basically, yeah. there's a lot of products on the market. There's a lot of false bullshit going out yep. there. Uh, products that are less than pure, products that are ineffective. Anytime there's money to be made, similar to the ayahuasca community, something breaks. We lose some type of authenticity when there's so much money to gets be made. overly commercialized. And I think exactly. that's kind of the
1: risk now with the discussion that a lot of these shamans are fake shamans and yeah. kind of these tourists...
0: Drug exactly. to go
1: to visit the Amazon now. Exactly.
0: Which, yeah. A lot of people think of detox as taking a product and detoxing your body with a right. product. Keep your same diet. Do whatever you want. Just take this product and you'll detox your body. Right. You, I'm sure we've all seen the
1: Instagram models with the detox teas or something. Totally. Drink this tea. Detox. So uh, you're not trying to sell that stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> okay. That's good to clarify. I've been
0: contacted by like seven of those detox tea companies. Okay. I don't even answer the emails because it's, it's, it's bullshit. It's bullshit. Yeah. It can be good herbs, but to truly reverse the tide of mental, physical, chronic illness, you need way more than tea, yeah. okay? Yeah. You need way more than juice. You need way more than all the things I experimented with before right. I found my protocol, basically, you know? So, basically, detox to people like that is, and it can, it, it is There's a spectrum. There's the teas, and then you start moving into real things like juice fasting. Juice mm-hmm. fasting is incredible for the body because- Most people have pounds of old fecal matter in their intestines because we're sitting in chairs all day. We are eating bacteria ridden uh, foods, antibiotic, you know, animals that have been fed antibiotics, miserable, depressed meats, processed foods. We're eating incorrect food combinations, right? right? So we're having fruits with proteins and doing all of these different combinations that are a disaster.
1: And I think perhaps some of the, again, some of the similar downsides you have with teas or detox teas is that. If you have juices that are very, very sugary, you're actually eliminating some of the benefits of what like a water fast would give you. So I'm actually curious to like, yeah. tease a little bit of the juice stuff just awesome. to make sure that, you know, we're not, you know, we're nuanced on, yeah, yeah. does that mean like you're just drinking Tropicana
0: <laughs> <No>. <laughs> or are okay. you doing yeah, more yeah. of a
1: sensible juice okay. cleanse or a juice fast?
0: Yeah. So water fasting is amazing because water fasting brings us into a process called autolysis, autophagy. Yeah. Yep. That cannibalizes all things in the body that don't serve us. Yep. Now, fasting has been mentioned in the Bible. Fasting is an incredible art towards healing. Yeah. However, I believe that we are so nutrient deficient today that extended water fasting actually exacerbates conditions, most conditions from what my experience. Okay. Because whenever you detox the body, you're always losing minerals with toxicity. Sure. Toxicity never comes out alone. It always comes out with minerals. So for someone who's pretty healthy, water fasting a few days a month could be amazing. Yep. For someone who's dealing with severe illness, I don't believe water fasting is the, the answer. So you want to have some micronutrients in there. Yes. So that's where like the juice tends to come in from. Precisely. Okay. The juice has electrolytes, minerals, low sugar juices, which you juice yourself. You don't buy Tropicana. You would juice in like a, okay. with a juicer, cold pressed. They're not going to spike the insulin too much. Right. Those types of juices are what we drink on a juice fast. Okay. So we're giving the body something to work yeah. with, but we're also borderline in that autolysis. As, as yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So, Autosic. so okay, that seems a lot more sensible. Okay. Because I think that in terms of
1: fasting is something that has been popular, and I would say in the recent couple of years. And I think there are different approaches that people treat fasting. Right. So mm-hmm. people will have like a coconut oil, or, or just have fat with as a way to uh, jumpstart, or like, a sister fast, or caffeine as an appetite suppressant. So, or, or bone broth, for example. Mm-hmm. I think the danger with a sugar from a juice is that that triggers insulin, and insulin actually triggers the mTOR pathway, which is the mediator for autophagy. So you don't want to get in this weird combination where you actually are calorically restricted, but also not triggering mm. mTOR. So the danger with just like, okay, juice cleanse, I, I think you're sensible if it's like, yeah. you know, making sure people- one are high.
0: ratio is what I've always right, done. Right,
1: if it's like a sensible- crutch that is highly micronutrient and low on things that trigger mTOR then I can see that there's some data and and mechanistic theory of why that would be beneficial Mm. so just want to clarify what was it
0: mTOR I've
1: never heard of that that's a a gene It's, it's a metabolic pathway okay okay and that's the metabolic pathway it's called sort of the nutrient sensing pathway is another way to think about it okay so mTOR senses the presence of carbohydrate protein to a lesser extent, and then doesn't sense fat because when you're fasting, you just generate a lot of fatty acids. Okay. And when mTOR doesn't sense nutrients in their bloodstream, then it's like, okay, we gotta break down to go through the autophagy mm. process, start recycling, and start releasing our own energy stores. Okay. So if you get that carb and then protein in that system, when you're, then it's like, okay, we have enough nutrients going around. We're not gonna turn on autophagy.
0: Yep. Yeah, makes sense. Yeah. So I mean, yeah, water fasting in that sense, water fasting would be better right. for science, no doubt, right. from a science standpoint.
1: But I can, I can, I can yeah. agree that, you know, from a palatability issue or from an appetite or just like an ease of use, like yeah. a little bit of calories from a juice cleanse or a bone broth or something like that definitely going to help. Yeah. So I can yeah. understand like you can play mm-hmm. with it. And I think totally ultimately you got to figure out what works for oneself. Totally. So what makes you able to actually do the fast? Exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's ultimately the most yeah. important.
0: Then there's the juice fasting, and that's generally where it's left. That's as far as I feel as deep as it goes in conventional detox world, Correct. right? Okay. Where I feel like I've taken it and learned about the next level is, is a few different things. So one is actually taking care of the gut health, taking things like colostrum and glutamine and butyric acid and eating low lectin diet. And what else? There's tons of other supplements that I talk about: licorice root and purple cabbage juice is pretty good too, but not too much. Yeah. Uh, anyway, there's there's tons of different supplements that I take for the gut. Then, so there's the reducing of inflammation in the gut in order to allow the body to detoxify. Because when the gut is inflamed, every other detox process shuts down. Yeah. So then there's binders. Okay, we talked about it. Things like clays, charcoal, zeolites, chitosan, citrus pectin. All of these things actually go in and act as a vacuum. They're negatively charged. Mm. So they attract the positively charged pollutants, suck up the right. junk, allow you to poop it out. Yeah, from the elemental
1: table, right? Metals are positive exactly, ions. Okay. Exactly, exactly.
0: Yep. So that's another step, you know? And then there's parasites, right? So I use suppositories. Whoa. And I, I believe most Westerners, if they do the suppositories, but they should always be done in the right Context, they have to be have worked on their gut first. They have to know what they're doing. I wouldn't just say for everyone to just shove a suppository up their right? right, right. But most people see physical worms. Eight out of 10 of my clients see physical worms coming out that's of in the United States, right? Candido worms, things like that. So that's another facet that doesn't get talked
1: about. That's something I've been like curious about. Like you just see kind of these YouTube videos of just like worms everywhere, and you're just like, hmm, yeah. do I have worms? Like, and, you and your, your thesis is that like <laughs> most in this office. Like half of us gonna have worms and we still know about it. Probably, but like I'm actually curious. Like you yeah. just given your 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 practice and your experience, you're just like, hypothesis here.
0: Yeah, I would say more than half. But the question is not if there's worms or not. The question is how how much of have they taken over? Right. I still have worms. I'm sure we all have parasites yep. as part of our microbiome. You know, like right. that's just it's 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 literally innate to us as a human being. Right. You know. Well, I would say gut microbiome flora is much different from worms. Yeah, <laughs> but there's parasites, okay. right? There, it would be in, almost impossible to rid ourselves of all parasites, okay. right, from my research. yeah. So I would say most people in this office probably do, but... So uh, I'm actually curious, is this yeah. selection bias? If, if eight
1: out of 10 yeah. of people, people that come to you, yeah. are these people like visibly... Se- I mean, clearly there's some issue going on for yeah. people to seek you out, right? So there's some selection bias entering your purview, but I'm just wondering yeah. down the spectrum of you as a case study being like quite fucked up to like normal yeah. people. Like, what is your typical range?
0: I work with people in that whole range. Okay, I work with people who are trying to optimize through detox, and I also work with people who are like about to kill themselves tomorrow.
1: Okay, and then the overall average, you say even in that average of like that range, eighty percent or so. Have... Yeah,
0: more towards the sicker, the definitely more okay prone. But uh, why don't we put a suppository up your body and see, <laughs> see, see what happens. Hey, Molly, yeah. Molly's gonna. Gonna do I think, her I, think. Yeah, I got it yeah, course yeah. the other day. I don't know if she's actually going to do suppositories, but yeah. <laughs> I'm not opposed to it. I, right. I think about you, it. I kind of be, would we'll, be interested. We'll put you on a protocol for like 10 <laughs> days and you can see, you know? Yeah. What would that
1: protocol look like?
0: Basically, I like essential oil suppositories. So lemongrass, turmeric, ginger. Also oh, this is
1: not like a pharmaceutical suppository. This is uh You make it yourself. Okay. Yeah. You make it yourself. You just pop it in. Pop it in. Yeah. 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 And then it sits there for a while in the beginning it in it's
0: very difficult to hold for more than like six seven minutes okay and then by your you fourth, feel like you want to just poop yeah, yeah exactly okay. by your fourth or fifth one you should be able to hold it for an hour and then at some point when you get good at it you can put it in and 40 minutes to an hour later you can literally taste and smell whatever the oil is that Whoa. you used because it's systemic you know rectal absorption is it's really efficient <laughs> brain yeah. liver you know yeah, yeah, yeah. i mean people yeah. do like coffee
1: enemas which hits you fast right yeah. like Again, this is from recreational drug usage, right? Like if you want to get hit fast. Yeah, yeah. But repository it works. Yeah, 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 And the end effect from that is that flushes out parasites. They don't like it.
0: They can't stand these oils. Huh. The problem with just doing that is that if you don't take care of the actual house, yeah. the mucus layer, which is keeping our integrity of our gut, tight junctions, leaky gut. If we have all those things that are not established and fixed, you kill worms. Two months later you're back to where you were because the house isn't healthy enough to contain the new life, the Is good life. Eating like the same contaminated food or something. Yeah. And it just gets repopulated. Yeah. I mean there's parasites everywhere, you know? Yeah eggs, there's eggs everywhere in all food and doorknobs and bathrooms. Yeah, yeah, I, mean, I, I, yeah no, I mean, it's something that like, I thought
1: about because I like sushi, I like, you know, I like my meat on the rarer side. And it's like, okay, you like look in our space, start researching, or curious. And it's like, yeah. yeah, most animals out there, you're probably getting some feces, just mixing the food supply. Yeah, And like, what yeah. is that 1% chance where you get something a little bit dirty at a little bit of a sketchy restaurant mm-hmm. over like a lifetime of 20, 30, 40, 50 years? It's yeah. like not insane to me that mm-hmm. you get that, over that long period of time, you get some sort of eggs, parasites going. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow, <laughs> going through your practice, so you, yeah. you were like, okay, suppository, like it sounds kind of crazy and, and funky, but like I'm kind of desperate, it seems like there's it's gonna possibly help. First time, and then what, like it worked, you just felt great, parasites
0: came coming out of your butt, like <laughs> what happened? Dude, pretty much, I mean, aside <laughs> from the feeling great part, I have pictures too, <laughs> should I bring, bring my Dude. phone out? <laughs> I have hundreds. We well, should put on the show notes. Yeah, I mean, I, yeah, can, yeah. I can send them to you. Yeah, yeah. So literally the first time. I can't remember if it was the first time, probably the third or fourth time I did a suppository. I was doing garlic suppositories. Oh. I was already four months into a gut healing yeah. binder protocol, nutrient replenishing, a lot of fear and uh, a lot of uh, different stuff. I also, and and you, so
1: like the binders, like you chose to go more like natural ingredient route rather than like a therapeutic pharmaceutical. Yeah, the
0: only pharmaceutical binder I was told about was cholestyramine, but I don't believe it works as well. And I believe it's very problematic for people who are sick. I, I so I stick the kaidosan micro I used all of them kaidosan, bentonite clay, coconut charcoal, bamboo charcoal, zeolites. Okay, are, are any of these prescription? Or are these all of them over the counter? Okay, yeah, so you went so,
1: that route instead?
0: And I then, believe, yes, okay. I okay. believe. And natural is debatable because they take the c- husks of coconuts and they cook and bake them right. in low oxygen, high temperature kiln. So, yes, right. natural, but. You know, I, it was just, it was just helpful to help, yeah. get a
1: sense for listeners out there. Okay, like, are these things I got to go through a doctor? Oh, wanna, no, no, got,
0: no. So basically, I was four or five months into my healing protocol. I was doing very, very well. I started waking up feeling alive again. Yeah. It was as if I woke up for the first time in my life. I was, it was like, I literally would wake up and be like, oh my God, I'm here. I'm on planet Earth. Yeah. I'm not spiraling into these torment. Yeah, what hell. was that first
1: catalyst? I mean, not to jump around yeah, too yeah, much yeah. here, but like. I mean, it sounds nuts that like you were just crashing. You tried all sorts of things, pharmaceuticals, ayahuasca ceremonies, and then the first couple of things. I guess you were starting to do juice cleanses, starting to treat your gut. I mean, what were like the main catalysts? All of them together? When did the light start turning? We're like, wow, I gotta double down on this.
0: Within three weeks, I realized that I was feeling better, which okay. is the first time I could say that in years. Okay. But you stuck for you stuck to it for three weeks. Oh, I stuck to it. I was going to stick to this no matter what. This is like your last hope (laughs) My last hope in life. So then three slash four months into it is when, because of the things I was taking, my gut, the inflammation started, was going down. And the binders were sucking up all of the mercury that was Mm. floating around my gut. I was being electrocuted. I literally had electrical impulses going up to the top of my brain. From here up to the top of my brain, sometimes, you know, 50, 60 times in a night, just shooting up like I was being stabbed almost. And all of my symptoms started to get better. I started sleeping. I started feeling less panicky. My thoughts started coming in slower. Colors started getting brighter. And it was all basically as if I was living out of my body for three and a half years. And I started, my body was so toxic, I couldn't even inhabit it. And then Mm -hmm. at some point I was like, and I was like, holy shit, huh. where was I the past three and a half yeah. years? Like, I'm not feeling happy right now, but I'm exhausted. I'm tired, but hello. Something know? turned on. Something turned on. Yeah. It was a combination of all of the different things. I was eating so many nutrients, so many nutrient-dense foods, like right. tons of butter and ghee and eggs and raw egg yolks and a lot of supplements, the kelp and the vitamin Ds, the B-complexes, huh. the Cs, liposomal C. There's hundreds of supplements right. that I've rotated between. Right. But-
1: You uh, see your diet's like kind of like low carb or ketogenic? I mean, I'm hearing like a lot of healthy, you know, you know, dense fats. Yeah, my
0: diet is very low carb, lectin avoidance. So okay. I don't eat any nuts, seeds, beans, grains, okay. or nightshade vegetables. Okay. Yeah, you know, you've heard of gundry, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So basically the suppositories after my third or fourth one, I remember seeing a worm and I was like, oh, I doubted gosh. it. I was like, okay, this is, this definitely isn't stool. This is weird and mucilaginous and uh, and bloody. You it? Oh hell yeah! I was like <laughs> every time I would go for a stick because in that level of illness and recovering from that level of illness, I needed every ounce of mind gratification that I could get. Yeah. Seeing one worm could be fuel for the next month because you see something and then you know it's real. Right before this, it was an invisible enemy, mercury. Yeah. It was invisible. I couldn't see it. Yeah. I was like, merc- I, even though I'm getting better, I'm still doubting this whole mercury poisoning thing. Yeah, The mind will always doubt whatever right. it is that could possibly be beneficial for us or helpful for right. Me. So my mind was always like, mercury, I just, I don't understand. Yeah. And then I can have the best day I've had in three and a half years. Yeah. And then that night I can be in a somber mood and say, mercury, this is bullshit. You know? Yeah. So seeing an actual worm is like, ah, it's real. Yeah. It's true. You know?
1: So basically So like it was like a I guess a bloody stool. Like yeah, it, just it was came bloody, out
0: kind of messed up. The first times I started seeing parasites is when I would do a suppository on an empty bowel. Yeah. And I would get this massive pain in my stomach. Massive, like literally had to be on my bed. And, and you uh, didn't
1: think that like it was a suppository fucking you up. It was it was I did. Like, I did. You're like, okay, I maybe should I did. stop this. Absolutely. You're like, I, I just poisoned myself with some weird I, essential oils on my butt. Absolutely. That's what went through my mind. <laughs> okay.
0: And I was just like, oh, this is miserable. I think this was when I got up to a strong enough dose. My first two or three I did were very mild. And I was like, I'm going for the big guns. I did this suppository. I'm in my bed. I get up and there's this gurgling sound. It's a quickening happening in my stomach. And then all of a sudden I go to the bathroom and what feels like a massive bowel movement comes out. And it was literally just three worms. There was no stool whatsoever. It was just three worms. Whoa. And then pretty much for the next like three weeks, I was doing them every day. I remember being at like Home Depot and like nature calls, you know, cause sometimes it's not for three hours that, right. you, that it comes out. I was like at Home Depot, my quickening starts happening right. and I'm like, Oh fuck. And I'm in the Home Depot bathroom and it's garlic <laughs> suppositories. Poop out so worms it's like this, and garlic. Yeah. Like destroying public bathrooms, you know, like yeah. I, I felt guilty. I would go to the bathroom and the smell was like, like literally as if, Imagine if like the whole, it's garlic was everywhere, you know? That's insane. (laughs) And like, so
1: worms are coming out of your butt. Yeah. And Uh did you thought like, hey, maybe I should check a doctor? No. Like at that point, you're you're totally like, just check out of the standard medical system.
0: At this point in time, I didn't even care what other people's input was. I was so focused on my body, my relationship to illness, to my brain health. Right. It was like I knew what was happening on an intuitive level because okay. of my experience. I, I didn't even care. I didn't. You're like, I, there's probably
1: some like anti-parasite pills you could take, but like, I don't want to even want to deal with it. Like I've had just poor success. Totally. I feel like I can manage myself better given the information.
0: Totally. Okay. Because okay. I knew there was brilliant. There are brilliant geniuses out there when it comes to the parasite work and brilliant doctors. I also knew that none of them would ever understand the level of sickness I came from. Okay. And because of that, I was petrified to put my life in anyone else's hands. Got it. Because of how fragile I was. I got it. Yeah. I mean, that's
1: wild. I mean, I'm
0: just imagining for myself, I'm just like pooping out worms.
1: That's terrifying. It's, I mean, it's. You get over like,
0: it quick. You get over I, it quick. I guess you get over it yeah. quick, but
1: like, that's just some scary, like, whoa, like there's worms in my gut, like, hold, like get this stuff out of me, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Like, I can imagine, hey, surgery, just cut me
0: open, pull yeah. that worm out. Yeah, I, like, but that's, all that stress and fear. It doesn't you're help. used to it yeah but it does it doesn't even help you know yeah. it's like it, that's true and it's real yeah but then when you go deeper with it and it becomes part of your routine it's like the fear of the parasites this is why people don't buy into it is because there's so many fear mongers out there right. who are like parasites parasites there's zero fear i have z- there's no fear I, nev- huh. I never instill this to invoke fear in people and then get them to act that's a low vibrational way of like put instilling mm-hmm. change in someone you know you just take care of business. There's okay. no like doom and gloom, like, oh my God, I got to get these out, or oh my God, the chemtrails, you know? Right. I don't go into any of those spaces. Does okay. that make sense? Yeah. 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 But, uh, totally valid. And yeah. that's where everyone's stuck. Devil's advocate or just someone
1: like, okay, yeah. you can have worms coming out. What would a like a standard person, citizen would probably be like, okay, call the doc, uh, yeah. worms coming out. Can you give me some anti parasitic pills or something? Yeah. Right. That's what normal people would do. Yeah. 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 So I'm just curious <laughs> to just like yeah. get, get into your thought process here. Yeah. So. A suppositories, worms coming out, and it, it, like you start doubling down. Like, okay, something is working here, helping you yeah. purge these worms out. Uh-huh. And at a certain point, did you just like cleaned out? Like, what do you mean, like of all the parasites? Yeah, it was just like okay. At a certain point, like you still have worms
0: I, coming I re- out. I released parasites for like almost a year and a
1: half. And like these are big worms. Like
0: I've had worms. I've had worms this big. I've had you
1: know this is like twelve inch, fourteen inches long. Totally, just for people that are listening. Totally, I've had fourteen inch worms Jeez, come out.
0: How thick? Thin um, guys, fat guys. So, I had the rope worms that I've had are, are thin, little mucilaginous, like mucus, like a little spaghetti. Uh, pretty much mo- a little thicker than that. Okay, I've had round worms, they look like earthworms. Whoa, I've had liver flukes and tapeworms. Tapeworms are big sometimes, yeah. I've had a tapeworm that big come out that's like 24 inches, <laughs> <laughs> something like that. Jeez, yeah. but remember, I was highly, highly toxic, so I'm an extreme case, right? Right, Not everyone's gonna have this. Plentiful, I hope not. plethora of organisms in their body. Yeah. So you think that the heavy metal poisoning
1: weakens your immune system for these parasites to really take hold? 100%. You think they were in parallel? So you, okay, so it's 100%. more of a f- former, okay.
0: Dr. Klinghart is one of the best detox doctors in the world. Yeah. Talks about the triangle. It's toxicity, malnourishment, parasites. All three of them, they each make every other one worse. Okay. Right? So when you have more heavy metals... You're more malnourished, worse toxic uh, parasites. More parasites, everything else goes down. So that's the spiral, you know, downward basically. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Because the the malnourishment and the metals create degradation in the gut lining. Right. So parasites now have a place to actually latch on to. Whereas sense. before there's there's a protective mucus layer. They yeah. they don't have anywhere to live.
1: Yeah. And I just like I know that the gut microbiome is an interesting subject of research now. And I imagine that your gut microbiome was totally messed up allowing space for parasites to really take hold as well so i think with the mucus lining all these things that are broken down mm-hmm, Interesting. and
0: my gut microbiome at that point was one of total darkness you know yeah. look at the state of mind i was in yeah. i always feel like this is reflective of this right yeah. however this is functioning you just know that that's what's alive in
1: here yeah you know? well, and i think that might sound kind of woo-woo to people out there yeah. but there is good data showing gut microbiome has an access that ties directly to the brain so it's not just like you know, Josh's yeah. theories. You know, there there yeah. is some real yeah. science coming out that there is some co- some co- linkage to mm. gut and brain. Yeah, yeah absolutely. I, I feel
0: like we should partner up, and I'll I'll be the anal <laughs> the, the, the 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 intuitive side, and you'll be the science. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I think well, I think that's where
1: progress is done because I think you need to have some sort of intuition to guide science. If no bets out there that are unproven, well, where do you even know how to search? Mm. So I think that is kind of. Like the tie between art and philosophy, guiding science and vice versa, mm. right? Hopefully, these are not antithetical, but hopefully, they can work in parallel together, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you strengthen the knowledge of both, right? Because then your philosophy, your intuition, can be anchored by data, mm. and then the philosophy can be further out to guide more experiments to, to figure out more truth, right? Yeah, I think ultimately, I think we're all searching for truth. Like, I, exactly. I, I like, don't doubt you for a second that. You've tested this on yourself, you believe it, right? And yeah. I think that there's some truth there. And I think you're applying your experiences as a lens to find truth. And I think all of us, <laughs> I think that are reasonable human beings want to just find truth. And like, what are the tools that we get there with? Totally, beautiful,
0: Yeah, yeah. beautiful.
1: I'm, so I'm curious, so like you essentially cured yourself with the advice of some trusted sources. And now that's become sort of your mission now. Absolutely. So tell us about that.
0: Well, basically, the company is is The Detox Dudes and the YouTube channel, my website's thedetoxdudes.com and I help people all around the world with their chronic illnesses and detoxification and mental issues. And basically, people come to me from all different countries. They come to me with all different problems, physical, mental, spiritual, emotional problems. And I just feel that I'm running a very intuitive-based recipe. I feel like people talk to me through my illness and and again, I know people are going to say i'm woo woo and full of shit or whatever however, your audience a lot of science people think I'm crazy because i I'm an intuitive guy, but <laughs> I literally just get messages. I just feel like I know exactly what that person needs in that moment. I also understand science, I also understand there's theories behind all of these things that I right. recommend to people, but because of my illness, I just cultivated this forced understanding of like where someone is at based on what they're telling me, their symptoms, their issues, what level on the spectrum are they as far as death to like to life. Right. And then there's a certain protocol that goes to each person. And, and I just get out of the way, man. I just get out of the way. Something comes through me. I, I can't, I, I don't know how else to explain it. If something comes through me and it's helping. The more most important thing is it's helping, right? Yeah. I'm, I'm changing lives on a regular basis and I, and I constantly get that feedback and that evidence. If that wasn't there, I would have already shut down Right, this people wouldn't come back. Right? Right. I don't yeah. think you could stay in business if no. people like you weren't no. helping people. No.
1: And I think one thing that struck me that I think that actually <clears throat> is resonant with why people are fed up with American healthcare today is that like their doctor relationship no longer has this intuitive communication. It sounds like you're really strong in that sense. Where like we just recently had Dr. Priyanka Wali on the program and she's talking about how she has to bill is the insurance companies mandate a 15, 20 minute slot and like jam people through and you get paid by prescribing medicine some things you can solve with that and like yeah overall like that seems to somewhat work but i think most people would agree like the overall system's broken and i think people are yearning for this kind of constructive open conversation where the guide i don't know what you call yourself you know yeah the practitioner has actual emotional tie that you they sense that you care about yes them. and i think in the What's broken with the traditional healthcare system, not to say all doctors are like this, but some sub segment are just treating people like subjects, like boom, stamp in, stamp out. Like, how do I just churn through 30 people on the calendar today? Yep. I think someone like yourself, I think, is just showing the flip side of the human interaction between healing.
0: Totally. And
1: like, again, I don't think this is like super fuzzy woo woo stuff. I think it's like in medical school, I think there is some emphasis on bedside manners. And I think what you're saying is like basically taking that to like a a much more natural, intuitive way, right? Like, Mm -hmm. you don't teach some. Medical school nerd to like be into. Maybe you, you should. Maybe <laughs> yeah. they should. Like, just yeah. get a little bit more softer and be able to communicate with people. With people, and you likely have better results. I remember just reading an actual recent study showing that. And again, I don't want to over extrapolate here, but you know, f- female nurses or female doctors have better heart attack healing. So, sex percentage, percentage rates. And okay. I, I, I didn't read too clearly into the study, but if you want to extrapolate and generalize here, maybe it's because. These people are more intuitive in how they communicate mm-hmm. and you have better outcomes.
0: They're holding a better space, you know. Yeah. And an again, energy.
1: I don't want to generalize that women are better yeah. at some things than <laughs> men, but again, I think my initial, perhaps naive look at that is what is the main difference? Mm-hmm. Maybe it's because of their bedside manners that are tend to be a little bit more softer or more intuitive.
0: Another thing on that note is that because of what I went through, yeah. I jump through all of those neural gymnastics that these people are going through. Yeah. By virtue of me knowing the gymnastics that they think that no other human being knows about. Cause these yeah. people are, are some of them are tormented. Right. And they're like going through their story and they're like, dude, you don't understand. I've had this thought and that thought. And then I've gone through this. Have you experienced that? And then I'll say something that lets them know that I went through it, that yeah. only someone in those gymnastics could possibly understand. And then they're like, holy shit, man, you did go through this. You know? And so that bridge of like hey i'm here now i'm, I'm past that world of darkness right. and i went through it is different than medicine right medicine is studying the books right practice of course and, right. and, but it's never i personally went through this right let's help you with this yeah. too right yeah so there's absolutely some value there because i think you come off a
1: lot more authentic and, and honestly probably more authoritative in a lot of ways than some person that's very cold clinical mm-hmm like the textbook algorithm tells me that you should take this kind of drug as opposed to like, hey, no, I understand your thought process. Let me help reason it through with you. Yeah, And I think if doctors of the traditional healthcare system just moved a little bit more towards that more patient coaching, mentor, guidance philosophy that it seems like you embody here for your clients, Mm. can you get the best of both worlds? I mean, obviously it's a far cry from changing medical school curriculum or styles, but there's clearly some value to what you're doing especially around i think the the personal side the
0: intuition side the communication side mm-hmm. yeah i think it brings it brings me to another woo woo subject there's something called the merging of the eagle and the condor and it was a ancient philosophy talked about how how the world would need to change is that we would need to merge the wisdom of ancient medicine with the science of modern days mm. And that's the eagle and the condor flying together. And I totally believe that that is how things will change. Hmm. That is how we'll really change humanity is by the merging of these two worlds. And yeah, I, I've thought about getting like a naturopathic degree or like diving into functional medicine. Right. I've had a lot of opportunities of like apprenticing under amazing doctors, right. living on their land and learning from them. I've had two offers in particular, all expenses paid, living with them. And I literally turned them down because they didn't feel right from an intuitive place. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I would love to learn from them, yeah. but something in me was like, I can't live there. I don't even yeah. want to live with this person. Right. Even though, you know, whatever. To be honest, I just wasn't crazy. I, I didn't like them. You right. know? So yeah, I want the right opportunity to come my way where I can like really dive into the science and right. like, start understand- and, and become the total package, you know? Right. And I try and learn, do my best with the internet, but I really feel like I would need someone to like teach me. Yeah, and, but I wouldn't
1: discount time. it. I think the internet is... A damn good resource right like the world's brain is on the internet so i think you get pretty damn far if you're just yeah. reading the first paper literature right yeah if you're just coming from a first principles like we're clearly like you're a smart person right like again not to discount formal academic education but if you're reading the same textbooks the same papers i don't know if you let's actually talk science like forget yeah. what degrees right like, like right, you right. said if you're actually just talking science right, right? Citing papers if you can match that level i don't see why you necessarily. If you can just You'd talk data, like it's yeah. like the kind of ad hominem argument, right? Like You don't do a, a version to authority argument for a logical base argument or an ad hominem attack if it's just like a logical discussion. Mm. And I think if you can just ultimately arm yourself with the actual facts and data, I think the results will follow. Obviously, mm. but that said, I think stamps help, right? People care about the stamps. Totally. So I, I see that dichotomy. Yeah. And I think it's, you know, our company, I, I don't have necessarily have the stamps. We have people on the team that have the stamps, the mm. PhD. so... How do you converge both? Um, but I also I also think that like one thing that you brought up the ego and the condor I thought was interesting was not even just for medicine or science I think that's like a broader cultural sociological phenomenon that's happening now where I think with postmodernism with just like broad multicultural space that we live in I think a yearning for a tradition again where there's like not a direction I think you have these like factions popping up in culture right I think one could argue that we're the in America the most culturally factioned up in, in recent memory. And it's just interesting that are there some sort of traditions that can help retie and rebind, I think, the wonder of creativity and freedom, and freedom of expression, but how do we not get to a point where just everyone's living in parallel universes of facts? Mm. Like I so I think people on the left are like, okay, in one universe, completely think the people on the right are completely different universe. Yeah. Like I, like, How do you even believe these facts? And I wonder if there's a similar analog there where are there some like traditions from us as more tribal or more primitive humans that can help rebind the sense of community or neighborhood?
0: Totally, I think that's what ayahuasca is doing. I think that's what a lot of spiritual communities are doing. I think that the the root issue of what you're talking about is the divorcement to nature. Hmm. I think we've lost our connection to nature, which is it's our it's our mother earth, it's our land, you know, and we're plugged into the internet, we're right. plugged into the, the digital. You know right. which is fine and there's amazing people doing brilliant things in that world. Right. but I think that our divorcement from nature is is causing a lot of suffering in that department, you know yeah and I think that hallucinogenics and plant medicines and and all these different I see a huge movement towards reconnection to nature, right you know. So I believe that both worlds can exist simultaneously. I hope, you know, I, I think so. I mean, I mean, Forest we're at the heart, we're in
1: the heart of Silicon Valley, right? Yeah. And it, it it just feels like a larger and larger percentage of people are more open-minded on this cuz I think they just realize that hey, like we're just on our iPhones and MacBooks and iPads all freaking day long. Not super happy, right? Like and I think when you go out, you like breathe fresh air, you're in the sun. You're like, wow, like burning man. I mean, burn, I mean, a lot of people are in Burning Man right now, and it's like they're kind of, it's not the very most natural. I mean, have you been to Burning Man? <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's not the most natural. I've been once, and it's like you're in a desert, and like it's like the most artificial food you're bringing flying in, right? Uh-huh. You're not like in a place that you'd want to live right, normally. Right. But there's some sense of just going more to this primitive existence where you're just like talking to people, mm-hmm. having a conversation. Yeah. Like not just like posting like your right your MVP pics of like you're in your highlights.
0: Being present, you know, yeah. being present with someone. I think that's what can change the world. Yeah, you know, presence. Truly, I believe that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah, yeah, and I think we're all just social creatures by, by, by nature, right? Like we evolved socially, and I think people at the end of the day want to have social connections. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is a a, a wonderful conversation. So. Yeah. How do people find you? So, mm-hmm. Detox Dudes, like what do you have in the pipeline for the rest of the year? Yeah. I'm so sure that you know people can find you at Detox Dudes, yeah. but what are the main projects coming up? How do people stay tuned and follow up?
0: Well, it's thedetoxdudes.com and it's thedetoxdudes on YouTube. Those are my two main channels. I also have a Facebook page. You can like me on there too. Basically, I do one to two retreats per year. I host retreats around the world and possibly I'm going to be doing one in Colombia soon. Also possible, I'll be doing one in Southern California. Still working out the details. Our ayahuasca no may ayahuasca. or may not be a part of it? Okay. No, ayahuasca. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay, okay. One day, maybe. One okay. Day. And then- Just give some sense of you know what people could be searching for. Yeah. I have an advanced master course that I created. It took me a year to, to create. Uh, Arthur Moore is an amazing YouTuber. He filmed it uh, with me in, in California. Again, it took me- Five years of suffering and then a year to actually make it, yeah. and that's my course that I sell basically on holistic health detoxification, how to go from death to life, or how to go from you know how to optimize. It's like the whole spectrum there, right? And so I really, basically our
1: conversation, but like way more, way deep and yeah, every, detailed. And
0: with every supplement, there's yeah, there's there's just so much. So you got the sneak peek t- teaser. Totally, yeah. If you're interested, in,
1: you know, get that course. Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. If you're interested in going deep with it, and if you're not interested in going deep with it just watch my free youtube videos i'm also coming out with a new beginner course in the next month or two because the advanced course is like it's fucking intense you know it's a lot it's for it's for serious seekers you know yeah and what else working on my new website and i eventually want to have a detox retreat center where i have basically i live at the retreat center and people come in and out and i'll have it medically supervised and kind of what i do for my retreats but uh with permanent permanent Yeah. yeah i'm kind of doing two different retreats, one that are detox oriented and one that is more emotional connection and just chatting and doing energetic, emotional work and just basically community, Okay, yeah. community, being around people who are like you. It, yeah. it creates amazing vibe, amazing atmosphere. So that's pretty much everything. Yeah. And I'm just really working hard at sharing this message to the world and spreading it. Yeah. yeah.
1: No, thanks for coming on and sharing this message yeah. story. and story crazy journey yeah so, so i'm so excited to you know see how this story unfolds and continues and yeah. happy to support it as, as we can awesome appreciate yeah. it man thanks for tuning in this week everyone as always please send my producer Zill and i any feedback or topic or guest suggestions to podcast at hvmn.com we read every single message and work really hard to make this program valuable and educational for you also don't forget our ongoing special offer By leaving a review on iTunes, you can get a one-month supply of our new Omega-3 product, Kato. Simply rate us with a written review on iTunes, screenshot it, and send it out to our email hotline. Again, that email is podcast at hvmn.com. Appreciate the love and support, and I'll see you again next week.